Hello. This is episode 18 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Now see that look in Mr. Pitt's eye, like 19th century literature, has nothing to do with going to business school or medical school, right? Maybe. Mr. Hopkins, you may agree with him, thinking, yes, we should simply study our Mr. Pritchard and learn our rhyme and meter and go quietly about the business of achieving other ambitions. A little secret for you. Huddle up. Huddle up! We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, Oh me. O life of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O me, O life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. The powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? When was the last time you read a poem? Probably a while ago, eh? If you're like most men today, you'd probably say that poetry is mostly for women, either for their entertainment or for wooing them with flowers. Well, that's where I'd say you're wrong. I played that Robin Williams quote from Dead Poet Society for a reason. And while Williams' character wasn't fit or physically strong, it's undeniable how much force he exerted over the hearts and minds of his students and over the audiences who've watched him in that timeless performance. That's a different kind of power than what can be found in front of a barbell, in our bank accounts, or in the bedroom. But it's no less significant of one. The great stories of history have come down to us in the form of epic poetry, from Homer's Iliad to Dante's Inferno and the epic of Gilgamesh. Surely you know Invictus, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And of course the phrase, the road less traveled, is based on a poem by Robert Frost. Even William Wallace said of his loyal band of men, they fought like warrior poets. But poetry finds no home in the world of today's men, and I think we're lesser beings for it. Materialism is the acknowledged curse of our age, And it's a sneaky one. We long for a deep and authentic spirituality to return to our world, and yet we're afraid to really encounter it if it means experiencing genuine emotion. It's easier to focus on our bodies, our bank accounts, and babes. But isn't that just an escape to what's comfortable? Namely, materialism. Now, I get that balance is being reestablished after decades of softness, particularly in men. But I believe that poetry has retained the ability to tell us more about our shared lives as men than we are able to admit. And I think that's due to a lack of education. 
My hypothesis is that a few lines of a fully realized poem can tell us more about ourselves and our fellow man than perhaps even a picture or a painting. A painting aims to show us truth with our eyes. A poem, on the other hand, gives us the chance to see what's true for ourselves by looking within, and I think that's a manly pursuit, probably one of the manliest. And over the course of the weeks and years to come, I'm going to prove it to you. That was the intro of one of two podcasts performed by today's guest. A man by the name of Will Spencer, an incredible man of a deeply eclectic background and a series of backgrounds that he performed at a very high level. A podcast called the Poetry for Men podcast. Now, the Poetry for Men podcast is part of an overarching series called The Renaissance of Men. Because Will Spencer believes, and he feels it in his bones, that the world is changing. Everyone has felt the shift. I speak about it in this podcast ad nauseum. I've described it as the end of postmodernism. I've described it taking the phrase from Forrest Munden as the age of heroes. The ending of Kali Yuga, as Zenobia would call it. And what many folk in the New Age realm would call the transition into the fifth dimension. But in the specific context of men, he finds that men are beginning to awake. That it's our time to heal. That it's our time to restore ourselves to our greatest potential. To bring balance back to the world. And I couldn't agree more. Now he has that first podcast within this Renaissance of Men platform of his, very simply called the Renaissance of Men podcast, a podcast that has a series of conversations with men who Will believes are doing their part and then some to helping manifest this Renaissance of Men to its fullest potential. People like Jack Donovan, Tanner Guzzi, and Pat Stedman. Instagram content creators like The Howling Void, The Grounded Athlete, and he was even kind enough to have myself on his podcast, as I've mentioned before, an honor that I have not taken lightly. The Poetry for Men podcast, however, is a podcast that runs parallel to the Renaissance of Men podcast, sort of putting Will's money where his mouth is in terms of cultivating practices that help men become Renaissance men, because the Renaissance of Men can't happen without an abundance of Renaissance men. And he chose poetry for the same reason listed by the late, great Robin Williams in that clip that he sampled from Dead Poets Society. It's not just, as Will says, becoming the greatest warrior, greatest physical specimen, most financially responsible, most attractive to the opposite sex that make up being a man, being a renaissance man. Being a renaissance man is tirelessly cultivating new skill sets to balance oneself and raise oneself, not just for himself, but for the betterment of his fellow man. And I don't think there's a better place to start with poetry. For man to do inspiring things, man must be inspired. And there's a phenomenal resource over hundreds of years in the poetry of men, now read for men. I wanted to have Will on as a guest 
on the Blood and Rain podcast because I certainly believe that he is doing the most important work in this time. He's gathering men from every walk, from every movement of masculinity that has helped rejuvenate man, whether that be the pickup community, as he mentioned in the episode in which I was a guest. The red pill community, I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And now the solar sphere that has come to fruition in just this past December with the Great Conjunction. I wanted to hear the journey of this man. And I wanted to hear the series of events leading up to his epiphany to make the renaissance of men his life's work. And I wanted to hear about what he has planned for the future, not just for himself and his work, but what he sees hopefully will be the next step for mankind. So without further ado, I introduce to you episode 18 of the Blood and Rain podcast, the cleric of the renaissance of men, Will Spencer. Will, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's truly my pleasure. Um, you know, to have a man like yourself take it upon himself to be the architect and sort of the cleric and the gatherer of all the people who are trying to foster and heal and restore and rejuvenate masculinity and to get them in all one spot. That's a, it's a tall order and it's also an incredible cause to, to live by. So I'm really curious and I'm sure a number of people are very curious to know more about the man behind this project, this massive undertaking uh, that you're performing. So mm-hmm. I would love to hear honestly the A to Z, the A to Z from where you grew up from the key moments of your development as a man and to how you came to this point where you decided this is your role. Plain and simple. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I can tell you all about that. Um, I just want to say real quick that I really enjoyed our, our conversation on my podcast a couple weeks ago. So I'm really excited to be talking to you again and and to be continuing the dialogue. So this is great. Likewise, likewise. like it, um, that that conversation was a gift. It was honestly a blessing, and uh, it was <laughs> we could have gone on a lot longer if I didn't have to go to work. Honestly, so yeah, exactly. I see this as part two. Like we're just going to hand the conversational football back and forth across podcasts. You know. Big time, big time. I mean, I know, I know you and Jonathan West are doing that, which is amazing to listen to. Uh, we had so much fun. It's, uh, I'm, I'm almost, I think I'm in, I think I'm literally halfway through uh, with your new series that you guys are doing, which I definitely want to touch upon, which I think it's, oh, yeah. that's another groundbreaking uh, piece of the puzzle right now as well. So. Oh, for sure. For sure. I've got some other ones, some other ones planned as well that you and I'll get into in the conversation, I'm sure. Oh, sweet. Okay, cool. I'm super yeah. looking forward to it. Uh, but before, before we get there, I want to, I want to okay. really want to start at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I can talk about some of the different streams that fed into making me the, the man I am and bringing me to where I where I am today and, and sort of awakening me to what I feel is my mission, I guess you might say, or my contribution is probably a better way of putting it. Uh, so I was born in Phoenix, where I live now. Um, and I've always been, I guess you might say, spiritually curious. Um, I didn't grow up with any real sense of, of religion in a formal sense, although I did grow up Jewish, there wasn't really a lot of uh, there wasn't really a lot of spirituality brought to the notion of Judaism. It was like we're Jews, this is what we do, uh, but there wasn't any let's talk about God and see and understand what that means. It's like no, we were Jews, so we do this these things that Jews do, and it was just kind of left as this open question. So I was bar mitzvah when I was 13, and. Being bar mitzvah uh, requires a bit of spiritual study, which is about as much as a 13-year-old can handle. It's how much is kind of given. But the most significant thing for me in that was uh, the Torah portion. The Torah portion is kind of like 
when the priest or uh, during a, a Christian ceremony reads from the Bible and interprets it, but the Torah is the same thing, only it's, there's no, nothing from the New Testament, obviously. And my Torah portion was the Ten Commandments. So if you're going to get a section of the Old Testament to read for your bar mitzvah, that's like top three. <laughs> you know? Without a doubt. Let there be light is up there. Probably some passages from Psalms or Isaiah. But yeah, if you're going to get, you know, if you're maybe Exodus, uh, you know, leading out of Egypt, th these are kind of the, the big hits. But the Ten Commandments is up there. But I remember the rabbi um, telling me at the time, because to understand the Torah portion, you sort of sit, spend time with the rabbi who helps you inter interpret it. So you can uh, give a, a sermon on it. So the, the Torah portion is you sing it in Hebrew. And then I think I read it in English, and then I sort of interpreted it for like a, about a hundred people in the in the temple, um, not all of whom were friends or family, like regular uh, Saturday uh, service attendees in the community. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm thinking, but now just even thinking about it now, like, wow, that's pretty incredible. And I loved it. Like, I've always really loved public speaking for whatever reason. I've always really enjoyed that and that's one of the things that people are most afraid of like they're afraid of like spiders and public speaking <laughs> and <I'm laughs> i think the third may be clowns but yeah those are, those seem to be the most recurring ones you know out of all of them yeah. exactly and i've always really enjoyed it so um who knows where that comes from but i remember the rabbi was telling me the structure of the ten commandments is and i don't remember it now and i should look it up is that uh, i'll just i'll throw a dart in the general direction of what he told me it's like this, the second five commandment, commandments are there to make sure that you don't break the first five. Like the structure of it is like the first five are the most important and then the second five are there because if you do those things, those are the things that will most lead you to break the first five, including the first ones, you should, thou shalt have no gods before me. And so once you get into some of the second five, they sort of back up that, that first commandment. And I thought that was really interesting. That was the first time I can remember ever having sort of a, it's not really a spiritual insight because I didn't have it, but to have this sense like there's something going on behind the scenes in this text that I'd never really thought of before. And then from there I went to a, a Jesuit high school. And so suddenly I had to reconcile Judaism with Catholicism, really. And, you know, sort of like, do I participate in the church services? Am I not allowed to do that? I don't really know what's going on. But I kept going to these things called Kairos retreats. And Kairos retreats were, I went to a boys' school, and it was like a retreat for, I think, 40 or 50 men to go up to Sedona, which is two hours north to a facility owned by the high school, Brophy High School, for anyone who's uh, who lives in Phoenix. Brophy uh, College Prep, right? Brophy College Prep, yeah. For, and for any alumni who might be listening, go Broncos. Um, so I... I would go to these Kairos retreats and I would listen to the priests talk about Christianity and Catholicism. And I remember I came back from one of those and, you know, I was always the only one who went who wasn't part of the faith or raised in the faith. Um, I was just really interested in having these conversations because it, it allowed, it created space for, now that I'm thinking about it, for young men to really open up and talk about what was going on with their lives. That was like, there were whole breakout groups where the young men were able to share, and there were men, I think, the 16, 17, and 18, just really able to share what had happened, what was going on with their families and stuff, and I haven't, literally have not thought about that until right now, because that would turn, turn out to be a theme much later in my life, um, without even thinking about it. But I remember really enjoying that process of, of boys who would otherwise be on opposite ends of the playing field of the lunchroom really getting to sit together and connect. 
Um, and then I remember coming back from one of those retreats and I got up to speak, you know, if anyone has anything to share to all the parents who were there. And I, and I said something to the effect of, you know, uh, there's only one God, how many more do you need? <laughs> and that was a, I remember just, uh, yeah, we were saying that very casually and then thinking about like, wow, that's actually pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then I, I, I came to the Bay Area to, um, to, go, to, to go to college and... Um, while I was while I was in college, I had the opportunity to um, stop out. So my my university uh, at the time this was during the this was during the dot com boom, mm. and so um, there at the, the school that I went to, there were a lot of people that were leaving to start startups, and so the school uh, had started this thing where you can leave school for some indefinite amount of time, essentially take a hiatus, and then you can you can come back. And you don't have to reapply because if you drop out of a school, you have to reapply and go through the whole process again. I was just given like a two-year hiatus, and that was when I went from being, you know, this Phoenix kid at a university to actually being in the culture of the Bay Area and the dot-com boom that was going on. First of all, the that episode of my life, um, I was what 19, 20, no, I was 20 years old, and starting a starting a, a a small company, but it's really a small, going to be big company, was the best education I could have ever had because it really showed me how business works, and not from the ground up, but from the top down. You know, there, there's, a, there's an article of, I gave an impromptu 30-second elevator pitch at this giant conference, and, and it went really well. I just got up on stage. There's a whole story behind it. It was, actually, it was actually in this magazine called Inc. Magazine, and I can send you the link if you want. And so I got up on stage and I gave this 30-second impromptu elevator pitch like, mind go off, mouth go open, words come out. And then next thing I know, everyone's cheering and applauding and stuff because all the judges had given me a thumbs up. And so I come down off the stage and a venture capitalist puts his arm around me in front of like 5,000 people in this auditorium and then leads me outside and says, let's talk. And everyone's going nuts and everything like that. <laughs> So we, we, we got the rocket pack strapped to our backs. Like we didn't even have business cards. So we had to get overnight business cards printed, which in 2000 and what year would this have been? This would have been like 1999, 2000. Like it wasn't a thing like it is now. Um, so suddenly, you know, we started getting lawyers and investors and, and went from being zero to zero to 100 overnight. And I was 20 years old. And getting to be on the board of a director, the board of directors of a corporation and raise money and see the corporate structure from the top down was really formative for me in discovering my potential. Like, no, I can just start things. I can just, I can just do them. Because here's, here are people rolling around in Silicon Valley with all the money in the world. And they're looking, they're like deferring to me and I'm 20, you know, as if I know something, right? And I would interview business school uh, graduates from Harvard and MIT and Stanford, and and I would be like, "Yeah, no, you're wrong. I don't. I, your your business school degree doesn't hasn't taught you anything." And I'm telling you what it is, and it was really challenging. The best business school graduates were from MIT, though. Like they really wanted to listen. So this was all when I was tw this was all when I was 20 years old. And I, it's I mean, it was like when I think back and reflect on it, like that's, that's pretty incredible. I, I can't say that it was any grand design, you know, like it, it wasn't the social network where I was some, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like really preternaturally, it was just like, you know, initiating a process and riding the wave. Um, but it was really formative. And at the same time, um, I, my sister, I came back to Phoenix for, it was New Year's Eve, Y2K. 
came back to Phoenix and went to and went to a rave. I literally, as you might imagine, like for for a kid describing myself the way that I did, I didn't party in high school at all. I never I never drank, never tried drugs. I worked all the time to get into the university. I did like I was school and extracurricular activities. Didn't have much of a social life. Same in college. Maybe I'd partied a little bit more in college, but I'd never done drugs before. But so she took me to this rave and fed me an ecstasy pill. And like the whole universe just exploded in my mind in the best possible way. Uh, and that was my first real awakening that inside myself, there were things that I wanted that hadn't been put there by anybody else. And that was when I discovered really clearly how much I wanted to travel. And my family didn't travel going up and I ne- growing up and I never felt any lack. It wasn't like I had always had these dreams. But suddenly when I opened up, I discovered inside myself, like, what is this desire to travel? Where did this where did this come from? I didn't put it there. My family didn't put it there. I've never been able to identify it before. It's not one of my values, but it was something I couldn't shake. And so yeah, I think the next important thing is I held on to that dream of travel for 15 years from that point forward, never really letting it go, never making a decision that would make it impossible for me to do that. For example, settling down and having kids or getting married, you know, and I continued saving and putting money and energy towards towards that goal even when it got really really hard um but i'll i mean i'll get back to that story in a minute so i went to the so i went to the rave and then after that you know i became i learned how to dj i found my way into the, in the underground rave scene and uh found this, a, the, this is like the carl cox era the early <laughs> days of tiesto era of uh of edm yeah it was sasha and digweed so carl cox was had been a big deal but sasha and digweed were like the guys in, in my, that particular era Got it. Uh, yeah yeah, that's the thing is, is like the DJ world, like when I tell people that I was a DJ now, and I was, you know, I'm happy to say I was actually pretty good at it, but they have these different associations like a Vici, and it's like, no, no, I didn't do what those guys did, you know what I mean? Like I was the guy heads down in the booth in the dark for four hours, you know, trying to make the perfect mix and the, ter- the perfect musical experience. No fireworks and arms waving around in the air, but people don't have those associations, but in San Francisco, you know, they did. Absolutely. Big time, big time. I mean, you know something about that world, right? Because you've been in the Bay Area. And... A little something, something, a little, uh, you know, tell my parents I was at a Boy Scout trip for a weekend, but really I saw early <laughs> one night, Dead Mouse the next night, and Tiesto the third night. That was like the golden weekend back in 2011. My parents had not a single clue. It was awesome. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, that, at the time, those artists, uh, Skrillex was pretty, I mean, he was still pretty underground at that point. Yeah, he had just come out with Scary Monsters and Nice Price and like blew up, but he was still like this new cat who was, uh, you know, he was the the singer from from first to last. He's a hardcore guy, just completely turned dubstep. It was it was interesting, but, uh, but yeah, that's mm-hmm. a totally transition. But you you were in you were in sort of the go- like at the tail end of the golden era of San Francisco and in the nexus of sort of what we're seeing in e- like the beginning of what we're seeing still now in EDM, basically is what you're saying. Yeah, there's a movie. Um, it's, a, it's a fiction movie. It's called Groove. And this movie Groove, um, it describes, it, it's about a, a tech guy, a guy who works for essentially a tech company, maybe not a startup, but a tech company, being taken to a rave and his adventure through this rave. And it's a great movie. It's an independent film. John Digweed, who's you know, one of the most enormous 
enormously accomplished DJs in history. Like he's just, he was the guy, him and Danny Howells were the two guys that I looked up to in, two, in terms of their skill and John Digweed's in it. And it's a great movie. And what that movie portrays is the underground rave scene in San Francisco in like the mid to late 90s, even though the movie came out in 2000. It's sort of like when it wasn't really a big deal, when it's just a whole bunch of kids getting together in a warehouse and before everyone kind of went pro with it. And so that started happening in like 2004, 2005. And so sometime in, I want to say between 2007, 2012 is when dance music and DJing really made it into the mainstream. And so that's kind of propagating outwards with guys like Above and Beyond and stuff like that. Um, but we, when I was first getting into it, yeah, it was still just beginning. I mean, it was huge in, in the UK. And it was huge in the underground of San Francisco and Florida, but it hadn't yet breached public consciousness yes, yet like it has now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think 2000, I feel like 2007, 2008, like Tiesto made a huge mark. Paul Van Dyke above and beyond. Army Van Buren was really starting to make waves here in the States. And then Dead Mouse and Skrillex were really, they, they seemed to be in the center of the psyche of it going mainstream. You know, you listen to Dead Mouse 5, you listen to <laughs> Skrillex. I'm like, yeah, I listen to Dead Mouse 5 and Skrillex. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting all salty saying, I listen to Skrillex's MySpace album. I knew way before he was cool, and uh, yeah, actually, you know, there's actually a Dead Mouse album that doesn't have the mouse head on it. I'm sure you haven't listened to it. It was that kind of before. ridiculous dynamic, ridiculous. Well, I remember um, my DJ, my my good friend, and my DJ sensei Jason. He was the guy who sort of. Um, I didn't have an easy entry into the underground rave scene after my first rave. I couldn't find a crew to become a part of. I wasn't really making friends, but Jason was the first friend I made in that world and introduced me to this family called Stargaze. Um, a whole bunch of people I still really love. But um, I remember, so Jason and I would get together from time to time, and he was like he's sensei. You know what I mean? Like whatever moves you bring on your sensei, your sensei ha is always working and has better moves than you. Like, oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Another feeling. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So he was like that for me. So we'd get together from time to time and, you know, we'd do our crate digging and, and find tracks. And I remember the first time he played me a Dead Mouse track. I will never forget that it was, um, I don't remember the name of it, but it was Dead Mouse's first huge hit. And, and I'll, I'll find it and you can link to it in the show notes or something like that because it's before anyone else had really heard of him. And the track was just like, what the fuck is that? Just ending, just ended the whole night. Like I have nothing, I have nothing on that. And he was, it was really clear. And then he did a couple tracks after that before he went in a really mainstream direction. But his first three or four tracks were just like on some other level, on some other level, unforgettable time. It, big time. Like there were a few, there were a few EDM artists that, like you know, there was a really, you know, you have the Dutchy, German, sometimes even Slavic trance music that, like, if you really get into it, you can get into it. And I have. Yeah, yeah, but that wasn't my gateway by any means. And if I would have heard those independently, I'd be like, "Oh, that's pretty cool." But outside of Daft Punk, because I grew up on Daft Punk, like from like I was there's a little video of me, in, I think in um, Marbella, Spain, dancing to a Daft Punk song at three years mm -hmm. old, just hilarious. Like the same the same year, I was headbanging to Nirvana in the back of my dad's car. So it was pretty clear what I was gonna like. You know, it was like very heavy music and very dance heavy music. Um, but the only other EDM artist I heard like from the get-go I was like wow was was Dead Mouse and I just he, he's a whole different sort of you somehow sort of conveyed spatial relationships and like actually did some kind of world building with his music that resonated in an auditory medium which I just I haven't really heard anyone else do honestly 
That's a really that's a really good point that I, I think maybe gets taken for granted the world building because during my era, like DJs. Uh, in, in my particular scene, I guess, they weren't supposed to make a big deal of themselves. Like, your idea is to kind of disappear and become invisible behind the music. That was what John Digweed was very famous for, was expertly mixed pace, tempo, and absolutely expressionless. Absolutely expressionless. The totality of your artistic, uh, I guess, mindset is supposed to be expressed in sound. And then Dead Mouse comes along and he puts on the mouse head, and he sort of invites you into this world and I'd never really thought of it that way. Above and Beyond does something similar because their world is all about love and togetherness. And, and I actually like a lot of Above and Beyond's music because they really believe what they're about. You know, I may not necessarily agree, but they believe what they're about. So I'm really into that full send kind of loving vibe. You know, it's like, hey, respect for that. But Dead Mouse was, you know, he was very groundbreaking in that way. You know, it's funny, too, because Daft Punk put on the helmets in 97, but they still wanted to be elusive. Like, they still have this very iconic set piece on both of their heads but you listen to a live 97 it was recorded from the q club in birmingham which people in birmingham uk which people still don't really know about was like this pivotal but like you said sort of out of the way like try not bringing a lot of attention to themselves like if you know you know i want to be completely separate from my work all my work to be what makes the impact so it's like even when people were doing those sort of props they still had carried this air and intention of not being at the center of it whereas like you said dead mouse is like come he really was like come look at me with this 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 mouse hat and mm -hmm. people were all for it myself included yeah. yeah i mean well he had the ability he had the production chops to really be like not only not only am i going to turn the presentation up to 11 uh, you know but i have the music to back it up and that's the thing is like there are plenty of examples in in all forms of music of of bands who put on a great show but don't have the music to really back it up and he had both and i think that's why it worked Absolutely. It was, it was congruent, you know, it was like, it wasn't, <laughs> yeah, you have a lot of pop music that has a lot of, you know, bells and whistles, and then you have some amazing songs that you hear, you know, I, I, I stumbled upon an amazing underground show, like in London, I just walked down a set of stairs and these two people in red blazers and pants um, called You Love Her Cause She's Dead, and I found out about this group, I'm like, who the hell are these guys? Mm -hmm. Alright, this is You Love Her Cause She's Dead. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, like, cause I'm supposed to know that. Um, <laughs> an another expert accent, by the way. Oh, thank you. That, that, that one, that one's, that one's still refined enough. It was, yeah. I was, I listened to the, to the, the posh, you know, heightened RP accent. Like, mm, a few details are I got to adjust, but that one I feel, feel comfortable with. But um, but yeah. So you, you're on this journey of, you, you come from Arizona. You come from more of a culturally Jewish background, but you begin to grow more spiritually attuned by studying the Ten Commandments in preparation for your bar mitzvah, and you start to really understand the concept of, of God being like the one omnipotent constant through a Jesuit school. And mm -hmm. that's also sort of like a little prelude of uniting, like you said, uniting men of different walks under one umbrella, under one grand cause. That takes you to the Bay Area and the way you're referring to your higher learning education that narrows it down to two universities, and I'll let people fill in the blanks. Um, one more southerly, <laughs> just more, 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 more indirect, cryptic usage uh, methods. Um, yeah, but um, like people who say they went to school in Boston, you know, it's like <laughs> if you ever talk to somebody and and they say, oh yeah, I went to I went to college in Boston, but there's only one school that they're referring to in that case. Yeah, yeah, uh, it really it really is one school, but a lot of people mm -hmm. get all salty about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Especially with the amount of numbers we think each. But um, mm -hmm. 
But you you hit this. You hit almost like the golden era of a couple of things. Mm. You hit you hit like the nexus of the dot com, and now the the early days of the tech that we're seeing now has gone wrong, but was exciting back then. Mm-hmm. And well, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, I, well, I I think one of the things that isn't necessarily obvious is that after the dot com crash, which was I think it was two thousand one. Yeah, it was summer 2001. San Francisco and the entire Bay Area was a wreck economically for three or four years. You know, like I had a pretty high-level degree with with uh, entrepreneurship, active entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurship experience, like board member raising millions of dollars kind of thing. And I ended up having to get a job at Bed Bath and Beyond and then Kinkos, like you know, doing doing large format printing. Like people excuse me, people were out of work. There were people with PhDs fighting for secretary jobs. So when the the tech boom that we're living through now started with Facebook and Google, and I used Google when it was, you know, an underground CS computer science project. I'll never forget that. That was really cool. But, you know, Facebook, Google, uh, Twitter, Amazon, that whole that whole thing, that was like a godsend. That was a real godsend because people started being able to go back to work in 2006 and 2007. And so, you know, everything changed with the introduction of the first iPhone. That was when, that was a big innovation in terms of a platform, a whole platform for, for new development. But, you know, during those years, like 2004, 2005, 2006, the Bay Area was just barely starting to get back on its feet again. Um, I trans- I, thankfully, I transitioned in 2004 from working at Kinko's into working for a real estate company that was selling lofts, so I was managing the website, um, which was great because it's an office full of real estate agents, so they all show up at various times during the day, so I didn't have to be up, you know, and in the office at 9 a.m. I could show up at like 11 o'clock in the morning, which meant I could go out and like DJ and, and party at night. <laughs> so it's, it's you're, you're hacking the schedule there. Nice. Okay, good. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, because there's no one really to care what time I show up as long as the job gets done, right? Uh, which was which worked out, but that was the first. That was when the economy really started moving, and so I, I feel like um, San Francisco prior to the dot com boom, though I wasn't ever there um, in like ninety five, ninety six, was the San Francisco, the image of the San Francisco that I think kind of endures in many Americans' hearts, and then San Francisco started coming back to life in two thousand five, six, seven, eight, and then once the tech boom started to really get f- super frothy. You know, is what it is right now. That's when you know. That's when San Francisco was really sent on its decline, as you have these enormous companies. You know, Facebook is probably not really going to go anywhere. I would like it to, but it probably won't. Google is absolutely not going anywhere. Amazon is absolutely not going anywhere. You know, these companies, they can, and Apple now for sure, they can continue expanding and continue attracting, you know, talent who wants the best possible brand names on their resume. And so the culture of San Francisco has been overrun by by people coming from outside outside the country, um, and they don't recognize that they're actually displacing the thing that they want to be a part of. But in a sense, like everyone's kind of trapped because how can you turn down a job at Apple, right? How you know if you're imagine you've just graduated from whatever university around the country, someone's offering you a job at Apple with incredible benefits and salary and you're making you can make your career like how could they not take that and san francisco is a very small city so um you know there's a lot of there's a lot of complex uh things that went on to make the city the way it is right now but there was a brief period of time where it was like oh thank god the money's coming back and we can all start having fun again you know it's funny i remember 
my mother was the one who really got me, who really showed me San Francisco, you know, coming just from the other side of the bay. Like, she was the one who really fell in love with the city mm-hmm. by far. And, you know, being 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, like, during that time, that, that gap you're speaking, it certainly felt alive. It certainly felt just glorious, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, had, I had no idea what was going on. I had, I had no understanding of the, at the time of the events that you were just saying. I was too busy wrapped up, I don't know, like with football and Star Wars maybe at that point. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I didn't know either, but I, it's just I thought about it over time over the years. Like, what happened there? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to look back and sort of like capture the causation of the zeitgeist, like these micro periods that people don't, that ten, people tend to overlook. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my, 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 my father wasn't about it. He was, you know, every city was going to suck compared to New York. And that's kind of the New Yorker syndrome, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, except, except for Spain. You know, anywhere in Spain can do no wrong to him. Even compared to Paris. He's like, oh, Paris is okay. But we should go back to Barcelona. I was like, okay, pops. Um, it was crap, yeah. Um, but so you, you, what's interesting to me is you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of many of the sort of aspects of culture that are sort of doing in man right now, whether they're funding it financially or whether they're spreading propaganda mm-hmm. or whether they're creating breeding grounds for vices or perpetuating weakness. So it, it seems to me that at least in this part of your journey, you were just taking it in for what it was. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, but in these, in these moments where you're getting to travel, where you're sort of truly fulfilling that, that need, that desire, that true visceral requirement of yourself. Mm-hmm. That maybe since you were stepping out of it, you were maybe were able to marinate on it subconsciously, or were you just truly wrapped up in the world that you're seeing in these various places you're going through? Oh, I was always, by the time I actually got to travel in, in 2016, um, which I did for, for four years at that point, I had gotten pretty good at being able to observe subcultures and and being in the rave scene really really taught me that because I would have to and I wasn't always um, I guess I'd say as put together mentally as I am now as as as, uh, as self self assured I think is the word and so I would constantly be thrown into these environments with unfamiliar people and there's drugs and music and really just having to navigate all these different worlds whether it be a club or a rave or a, or someone's house at an after party and and really having to find solid ground within myself in order to overcome what was pretty bad social anxiety. It's like, okay, here I am in this environment. I don't know anybody here. Or I know one or two people here. All these people know each other and I have to somehow hold it together and not, um, and, and not make a fool out of myself or, or look like an outsider, I guess is a better way of putting it. And so that was a real battle. That was a real battle for me that I continued subjecting myself to. But it helped me get to a point where I could look around at all the people, especially with, with social ang- when having social anxiety, and really get into an observing mode and witness the people relating and interacting and seeing who knew who knew each other and and of course you know coming from you know growing up Jewish and going to a Catholic school and then going to the Bay Area during the rave scene days I was exposed to all different kinds of spirituality primarily Eastern lots of psychedelics lots of uh, uh, Ram Das you know be here now stuff like that um, and so that was initially like how am I going to, and plus a lot of like Terence McKenna a lot of that whole psychedelic psychonaut kind of vibe and sort of having all of these things that I'm marinating in as well as the different social circles I really had to find inside myself a place where 
I didn't feel the need to grab onto any of them, where I could just kind of all watch them interact and, and detach myself from them. Uh, and so later, you know, when I, when I went traveling, I was, uh, I was in a place and I had done, you know, one of the themes that I've kind of left out is my journey of growth as a man and why this particular field of study interests me. It's not even a field of study, why this particular moment is my calling in my life's work. And the, the two major touch points for that prior to traveling were when I was at university, I took a class on, uh, on Carl Jung, Jungian psychology. So I finished my startup, I went back to school, finished my degree, and that's when I took a class on Carl Jung. And this, the teacher was excellent, I should look up his name. And he was the first to uh, talk about thinking symbolically thinking archetypally and he would t his class was all about Jung was all about interpreting myths and understanding a, a, a great myth not as something a narrative that you're watching outside but as different parts of your mind interacting with itself so the myth of, uh, of Isis and Osiris for example the Egyptian myth is about reconciling the masculine and feminine within within the human mind it's not about something going on outside necessarily and this is this is jordan peterson of course popularized this and that's why he became so famous he's interpreting the bible through this archetypal mythological lens based on some of the ways uh young saw things and i also learned about dream interpretation and how in a dream uh one way to look at it is if your subconscious mind is communicating to your conscious mind using the language of symbols. So when you dream, if you see a dream of, you know, of, uh, for example, a car. It's not, this is not always the case, but this is a good example. You're driving a car down the road. The road. What you're actually seeing is you're not actually dreaming about driving in the real world. What the dream is trying to communicate with, to you about that symbol, potentially, is about you being embodied and on, and on the road of your life. And whatever takes place in the car is something that's taking place in your life or in your mind. And so it's your subconscious, because your subconscious doesn't think in words like our conscious mind does. It thinks in pictures. And so in order for our subconscious mind, the, the notion that the subconscious has a mind of its own and can communicate to the subconscious mind is a whole other thing. That's a whole other thing to, to get into. But that was the first time I was really introduced to the notion that my mind as a man can be complex. Because I grew up in this heavily feminized environment that really does, looks down on men. There's a, there's a famous meme where... Um, I'll see if I can find it. It shows two essentially racks of audio gear, you know, one audio unit on top of another. And the top audio unit has all these buttons and knobs and dials and switches and stuff like that. And the bottom audio unit just has one switch that says on off. And the top audio unit says women's minds and the bottom audio unit says men's minds. This idea that it's, it's hugely misandrist, it's hugely sexist against men. But the thing is, that's what I thought of myself. But that wasn't my experience of myself. Like, I was always a really thoughtful, uh, observant kind of kid. You know, I did well in school and all that. But I didn't really, ha I wasn't reflective on my own mind. So to go into this Jungian psychology class and to be able to see that there was a man out there, whether it was a man or not is irrelevant, but that there was a man who had said that the human mind is fundamentally complex and is worthy of understanding that was a huge awakening to the, the reality of, of existence. And that was when I began to appreciate my own inner life and take it seriously. Uh, and, and, and that's why I was able to, later in the, in the rave scene days when I was feeling all the social anxiety, I was able to somehow separate me from myself and say, there's something going on inside my head that's not me and I can set back and simply just experience it without getting lost in the weeds of it, which I went through plenty of periods of time with that. So that was hugely important in terms of me learning to relate to myself. So that then, 
Um, then in 2013, when I went on the Mankind Project New Warrior Training Adventure, uh, which I had Boyson Hodgson, the communications director for the Mankind Project, was on my podcast maybe a month ago. When I went on that weekend, that was taking all of these Jungian ideas and putting them into practice for my own initiation. Like I'm already really familiar with all the chaotic things that are going in my mind, but there's no central pillar for me to orient them around yet. And when I went through my initiation, suddenly I had a central pillar to organize them around. I am no longer a boy, I am a man. And it was as if my mind began rearranging itself very, very slowly around the central notion of masculinity. So that, when three years later, and it's, complete, it's directly related to my initiation that I was able to find the strength to make the changes in my life necessary to liberate myself from my decisions because I, I recognize I'm a man, I have the right to live my life as I want. I don't have to stay in a relationship I don't want to stay in. I don't owe anybody anything. I, don't owe, I, owe, I owe myself my own fulfillment. In fact, that's my, that's my right and my responsibility to live my own fulfillment to its maximum. And if I, if I act in that spirit without any intention to cause harm, I don't have to be responsible for, for other people's lives. I have to take on my own life first and foremost. So with those pieces together, I was able to go forward into the world and, as you said about travel, being organized within myself, having a sense of my own self as a man, being able to observe different subcultures, being able to manage my own anxieties and feelings of discomfort, huge, uh, and, and having my own sense of entrepreneurship, like knowing that I can do the thing that I set out to do and, and uh, maybe not fake it till you make it, but there is a component of like, I'm going to fig figure it out as you go. Carrying those things forward into travel was immensely powerful and because I wasn't able, I well, I say able, I didn't get caught up in the moment. Like I was able to observe the cultures. Like, let me just sit back and watch what's going on here. This is very interesting, this, this scene. It kept me safe because I was able to spot, you know, when people are perhaps looking at me funny uh, or, you know, having a having intuitive sense of what's going on around me, as many travelers don't, knowing when, like, you know what, I, yeah, you're shaking your head. Yeah. Exactly. Well, they're very, I mean, they're, they, they have much less life experience and they're there for the novelty. But for me, it was like, no, I'm actually here. I want to see the world for myself. And I've said, I've said in uh, one of my podcasts, I think I said in, on my Universe Within podcast where I was a guest, I've only ever wanted two things. And that's what I discovered that I finally was able to put words to uh, at the rave, in the rave scene when, when I woke up to what was inside me. I've only ever wanted to explore my own mind, my inner world, and explore the outer world. And I've been very, very blessed to be able to do, to do both. Very grateful for that. And, and to bring them both together in the process of travel. I mean, travel is a process of shifting your inner world along with the outer world. The novelty just constantly strips things away, saying, no, you don't need that, you don't need that. You need to bring this forward, you need to put, bring that forward. It's a, it was a hugely transformative journey, but I was someone looking for that from travel, and not everyone does. So hopefully, that, that, hopefully that's not all too much. We can dive into any place of that. I mean, no, it, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. I yeah. mean, that, that, <laughs> Dang, I'm like, okay. <laughs> breathe well, breathe. I mean, so, like, you know, like some of the, and I guess I should have prefaced this earlier. Uh, folks, for all you listeners, uh, I had the privilege of being a guest on the Renaissance Event podcast. Uh, is episode number 23, I believe. Mm. Um, and uh, Is Michael Jordan's number? That's not a bad number to have. Uh, actually, oddly enough, the, the, I don't know how much you know about numerology, but the number 23 has popped up 
attached to some number or alone at pretty much every big event in my life, which is mm-hmm. interesting. Um, awesome. But naturally, it's you know, like actually, you're. I remember I told you, and we can get into this later as well. But I was listening to your podcast with Oaks and Oaths, and Oaks and Oaths went on this sort of just like not a tirade. He's a very passionate speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and folks, once again, for all of you who aren't familiar, Oaks and Oaths is a podcaster who recently converted to being a Norse pagan and has seen just immense benefits in his life. And he began a podcast um, centered around the Norse pagan faith. And he also had the privilege of being a guest on Will's podcast, the Renaissance of Men podcast. And I was listening to this podcast and I'm walking home. And as I'm walking home, he goes through this he goes through this, not rant, he goes through like this almost like spirit-filled charge, like one, it's like one beam of energy attached to a couple of sentences, like this very just targeted shot of energy. Mm. And as I'm walking home, like three three license plates with number 23 pop by attached to each number, and they each have like a significant date of my life when he said hero's journey, like a hero's journey of mine was completed on August 23rd back in 2018. And another one about nine, two, three. It was all at once, as he's saying, talking about the the hero's journey and things coming full circle within the self and truly becoming the hero within. As two crows are sort of following me around, it was very, it was intense. It was mm-hmm. very, very intense. Um, but like our podcast, like like my uh, guest appearance in your podcast, there's a bunch of topics that just sort of like we we could make those into an entire podcast in itself. Yeah especially with the way you speak of travel and i would have to agree i, I think I've, I've done a, a fraction of the travel you have but in the little that i i have done um i've noticed that that is sort of a bi-directional relationship between the inner world and the outer world when those shift mm-hmm. it's like the inner world like when you for instance when you come home after being away and you find home completely different like no it's the inner world that's shifted and therefore now your outer world has shifted so it's it's very much a push-pull dynamic um and it, it also about being being a traveler like the difference between being a traveler and a tourist like are you the tourist who has a checkbox of things you want to see are you are you there going to just see it and then say you saw it and take some pictures and buy a t-shirt or are you going there to just marinate in it and experience it to understand the aura surrounding and why it's significant and why it gets so many people to come to that spot in the first place. Mm-hmm. The local the, the local people's sort of relationship to it, even though it could be this historical landmark um, that stood the test of time, and maybe to them it's just, oh yeah, that's, you know, my father jokes, you know, I've never been in the Statue of Liberty. I'm like, that's not surprising because he grew up in New York. Sure. But you think I'd get around to it, but I'm like, no, you wouldn't because you live there. Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't been to Alcatraz. And I'm from Oakland, like, please, like, come on. Because I'm going to jump away, you know? Um, but still, okay, this, this, is an, this is an incredible journey that I keep thinking I see a thread where I'm like, okay, that's how we got to the Renaissance Minute podcast. Like, nope, then it just goes somewhere else. Um, <laughs> so to recap, once again, you have cultural Judaism, you have Jesuit education, you have brotherhood, you have a very high level of higher learning you have the storybook 20 year old startup experience mm-hmm. then you get into the rave scene and you sort of base everything around the rave scene in a discipline that it seems like if you came from from this level of higher learning like oh what's he doing like a lot of people will be scared like what's he doing now 
They're like, oh, he's he's, he's being he's being a DJ. I'm like, oh, really? He's not at some you know, he's not at Deutsche Bank with a with a seven figure salary. Like that that seems to be expectations. And it's you know the very cookie cutter sort of journey that a lot of men go through that you and I discussed, um, like this empty suit journey mm-hmm. that you and I discussed that is very prevalent in the Bay Area, which just they would be completely confused by, just just utterly confused by and wouldn't, wouldn't see any value in it because they've, they've seen value just on the spreadsheet. That's the only that's the only method of value they have in engaging life. Mm-hmm. So what what kept you had this epiphany of travel going home at Y2K? What kept you in the Bay Area for 16 years? That was like okay, maybe was was there a fear of travel, or just that you're not ready yet, or were you really just bogged down in the discipline of being a DJ and trying to perfect that? Like, what was it that kept you from it for so long? But it sounds like it was beneficial to the point that you got to it. You got the most out of it in 2016, I would imagine. Oh, it was definitely the road that I needed to walk. I mean, and this is from the perspective of you can only put things together looking backwards. You can't put them together looking forwards. Um, I will, I stayed in San Francisco. I considered moving to other cities, but I stayed in San Francisco because San Francisco was the shortest route, in my judgment, to being a successful traveling international DJ. Because what I had done is I had taken this desire to travel and this desire, I think, probably to be the man that I am now, and certainly the man that I was on the road. And I had applied it to DJing because I was—I remember I was—I was flying high on the on the pill, and I was looking at the the ecstasy pill, and I was looking at the DJ in front of me, and I was like, I want to do that. Suddenly, all my psychic energy went towards that, and this projection that I projected outwards these desires onto this—it was a—it was a man and woman couple actually, um, Guy and Lisa Oldham. So I don't know whatever became of them, but I was like, that's the job that I want. And what I had done is I had uh, mistaken the object of the DJ for the subject, which was me. I was I wasn't able to I wasn't old enough or wise enough to understand that I was I didn't have the psychological knowledge either to know that I was projecting my inner journeys on this object, and I thought that if I got the object, if I get that, I'll be happy. So I continued in San Francisco because it's a small city, it's a small scene. No one's really competitive. Like everyone's really kind of friends, because there's not enough people in the scene to really sustain multiple parties in a night. Versus if you were to go to New York or Los Angeles, where you have to segment into a clique and people are competing, and it can be very cutthroat. San Francisco at the time, and probably still is, held to its San Francisco values of community that the entire dance music community saw itself as one thing, and so uh, it would be much less conflict driven and if I could make it to the top of that particular scene that had the shortest route into traveling internationally because I so so I held on to this vision of being a DJ long enough to carry me through essentially 16 years of my life to get me to exactly where through the experiences that were exactly what I needed to have to get me ready to travel and when I realized that that was like the most mind-blowing thing was for example I uh, I was in a I was in a relationship um, I was in a relationship and, and part of what kept me there for up leading up from 2006 2016 was I was in a relationship uh, and you know without really disclosing too much about the woman that I was that I was with um, let's just say that uh, that she she wasn't she wasn't able to have kids let's just put it that way and so I knew that I wanted to be a father um, but uh, I stayed in that relationship. Because I knew on some there's lots of reasons why I stayed in the relationship, but on some level I stayed in the relationship because I knew that there was never really going to be any pressure to have kids. 
that if I went out and tried to date somebody who could have kids, I might have kids, and that would be the end of being able to be a DJ, of being able to fly around the world five days a week, you know, and then come back and be a wreck for the next two. So I stayed in that environment because I never fully gave up on what it was that I wanted. I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I've always been, I've been saying this about myself for a long time, I've always been the guy who, like, is dumb enough to take the, the, the things seriously. Like, oh, dance like nobody's watching? Okay, well, I'll just dance like nobody's watching. You know what I mean? That, that was, that's just an example, but it's like, you know, it takes, like, follow your dreams and never give up. Like, I'm just the guy dumb enough not to, take that sh- to take that shit seriously. You know what I mean? Not that I regret it. You know what I mean? And it was that thing. Is this like I wasn't really, I wasn't willing to give up on myself. Not yet. It's like I'm not willing to give up. You know, and I, I, I finally did reach a point in uh, 2000, and, in the summer of 2015, where I was finally, finally ready to let the dream go. And when I, and, and because it just wasn't going the way that I wanted. Because, for example, success in the DJ world has probably never been about being a good DJ. It's always been about being an excellent producer, to being able to write electronic music, not just to DJ it. I got, I did, I was, I, I couldn't get interested in writing music. I couldn't sit in front of my computer for hours on end, making rhythms and bleeps and bloops. I just couldn't get into it. Um, I enjoyed the editing process, the taking of the bleeps and bloops and arranging them into a track, but I just couldn't write a rhythm track just to save my life. I wasn't, I really just, I couldn't be arsed, as they say. And, and, but my skill as a DJ was great, but success outside of your local environment as a DJ doesn't happen unless you produce tracks. And then you get invited to fly, and then the thing takes off. So I realized, like, you know what? After this particularly powerful um, experience in 2015, because I'd gotten into self-work and, you know, uh, the, the Mankind Project and therapy and stuff like that. And so I got really comfortable with going into the depths of my mind and digging out the trauma and the mistaken beliefs and the things that hurt and purging them and letting them go. So after a very uh, powerful piece of self-work, I realized that um, I'm just not interested right now in in uh, producing music. Uh, you know, if you think of someone like um, like a dead mouse or like a Skrillex, they probably, at the time, they went to produce music to relax. Like, there was nothing they would rather do. You know, like, they, you don't have to fight to get them into the studio. Like, that's where they want to be. You have to fight to get them out. Like, there's no way I'm going to be able to compete on that level if I have to force myself into the studio. Yeah. Once I saw that really clearly, okay, it's time for me to let this go. And then I let it go, and a whole bunch of other things happened to end my relationship. Um, I was finally ready to let that go as well, and all these things just fell off at once. And that's when I realized that I was free to travel, and I had gotten everything that I needed to get, and was ready to go. And then it was just a matter of, okay, I'm, I'm really going to do this. I'm really going to push all in with my entire life to travel around the world. I sold everything, sold my car, got rid of all my belongings. I basically have bought, at the time, I just had boxes in, in a small storage unit of like photos and my record, my favorite records. I sold most of my DJ gear. I own nothing except for a, a carry-on size backpack that I got on the plane with. I was like, you know what? I'm pushing all into this experience. And, you know, I, I'm, I gave up passion projects. I gave up, uh, I knew I might give up friends. I knew I might also, you know, for reasons beyond my own control and preparation, it might cost me my life. Like, I hope that wouldn't be the case. But, you know, when you travel, you have to be prepared for things like that. Um, you know, so I wrote a will and a, you know, do not resuscitate order. Like I took it seriously, you know, yeah, well, I mean, it's like, you know, I I needed to make sure that, you know, the things that I cared about were taken care of. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, knock on wood that I didn't have to be sitting on a machine. Like these are things I had to think about because I took it seriously better to think about them than not. 
I said, you know, okay, I'm going to give it all to this. I'm going to give my all to it. And so I, I leapt. I leapt into the, into the void. Um, and, you know, I realized in doing that, that that entire 16, 15 year cycle really gave me everything that I needed to take that, to take that chance. And I'm incredibly grateful, not just to life for, for giving me the um, strength to see that through to its natural endpoint, which was a real struggle, but I, I, I'm grateful to myself for being the sort of person who takes those, who takes those leaps. And is, you know, I don't know, brave or foolish enough to say, I'm going to jump and figure it out on the way down. And that's always how I've been wired. Like, hey, I'm 20 years old. Let's start a company. Hey, let me walk up to the front of this auditorium and tell a bunch of, you know, long-term professionals and venture capitalists, like, let me just open my mouth and start talking. Like, figure it out as I go. And, and um, I've been very lucky to be that to be that sort of guy. And so that, I guess in some way that kind of leads me to, this, to the renaissance of men in a way. You know, because I, during that journey, my discovery of so much about myself as a man and this recognition that it what was really missing from me and from my life was an appreciation and an acknowledgement of what it means to be a man and once I began reconnecting with that very slowly bits at a time this awakening happened inside myself like something has been taken from me and I'm not the only one because the mankind project helped show me that and so that's you know that's how all these things began baking together into the to the man that I am now. <laughs> wow. You know, I have a lot of ambitions of travel when I hear there, there's there's two sort of methods of travel that I've seen slash heard of that I was like, all right, that seems like my my kind of method of mm -hmm. want to travel. The first is very much as like I wouldn't say a single man because you can do this if you're just traveling on your own. Hearing Henry Rollins speak about, you know, I like to grab a backpack. I'll have a watch, so I know what time it is there. Mm -hmm. And I go to blank country that the United States uh, government tells me not to go to. And then uh, I get in a taxi. I say, I want 10 bucks that way. What do you mean? I want 10 bucks that way. <laughs> like, just take me 10 bucks that way. And I start talking to locals, and they all sort of look confused. And no one's, no one's very aggressive. Like, hey, maybe downtown Nairobi got a little sketchy. When I was in the green zone in Baghdad, yeah, sure. But um, he would he would just locals eventually talk to him like, uh, hi, wh who are you? What, what did you come here for? Hi, I'm Henry. I'm here to see you, man. Like, just very like he truly going native and not caring at all. Mm -hmm. like, that is that's something that resonates with the other is this is certainly more as an engaged man. Um, it's certainly more applicable as an engaged man. It's just, it's just watching, of course, Anthony Bourdain's parts unknown mm -hmm. um, and just it's a bit more ritualistic it's a bit more formal you know it's a bit less me just showing up and them not knowing and me trying to actually build relationships with true locals and have a very authentic experience and take it in for its essence and then applying that to the inner work like you're saying mm -hmm. um to go all in is not something i could do like I, I, that is the, that's, i mean that is absolutely incredible and i'm sure most most people would not be able to do that, that is that's a different kind of leap of faith because when we hear about journeys sort of in myth, right? That have these leaps of faith. It's a lot of like, I'm leaving the village now, like for the, for the first time, you know, it's even when you play Zelda link leaves, whatever Kokiri forest or whatever, it's like, all right, we've got to go slow again and go some more. Let's go. Let's go do it. Um, that's an immense amount of faith. 
And did, did you did you see it as an immense amount of faith at the time, or did you see like like you're saying like this is just who I am, and you know I'm just gonna go do it, like take things literally. So I'm just plain and simple gonna go do it. Or do you do you see an element of faith involved at this, at this point? Oh, very much. Like I, I yeah, yeah. After my experience in the Mankind Project, I started seeing a, a male therapist. His name is Jamie. He's one of my good friends, and in a way, a mentor um, and brother as well. And he, uh, he's always had a really good beat on me. Uh, and he said he saw me uh, engaging with what he called an intimate dialogue with life. And by this point, I had done so much inner work as to be able to kind of clear out a lot of the noise that was in my head, a lot of the doubts, a lot of the fears, a lot of the anxieties, because I had put so much time into it. And that enabled me to really have, like you said, an intimate dialogue with life and stay very connected to myself and the general subtle energies and, and whispers of things around me. So, I mean, that I don't know what to call that other than faith, that I'm talking to something that isn't me. Um, certainly I was talking to myself, like, how do I actually feel about this situation? How do I feel about this person? But also very much like, where am I feeling called to be right now? And that was absolutely a part of every, almost every minute, you know, of that entire journey. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, I wouldn't say it's surprising because it makes so much sense, you know, mm-hmm. like with, with, with such a incredible action um and i think it's 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 immensely important to have people who do have a beat on you a lot of people do yeah. not and so that can i don't even call it a safety net but having a second pair of eyes like a wingman not the wingman to go you know find girls at a bar like a wingman in life who can say is like hey i noticed this you know the, um, the roommate i told you about who and in, in, uh in my appearance in your podcast who i said you know, has a similar likeness. Um, you know, you, you would think that we're brothers. Him and I had a relationship where we would very explicitly say, "Listen, you can tell me to shut the fuck up if if you want. I completely understand. But I noticed this blank habit or this blank situation mm-hmm. isn't that good for you, and I'm seeing it in you. Having that person who can actually gauge that, I think that's immensely important, especially in the in the fighting world." I've been trained by brilliant coaches, but I don't think I've ever really had a coach that's understood me, and that's actually kind of a search in mind at the moment. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, but another question I had, you, you refer to this multiple times, and this is this is a podcast of yours. Unfortunately, I have not had the privilege of listening to yet, but this Mankind Project, um, yeah. can you tell me more about that? Because I'm, I'm unfamiliar, and I'm sure it's, it sounds like something very much relevant to the Renaissance event, especially on your personal journey. Very much, very much. It's actually, uh, so I describe the Renaissance of Men as this 40-year cultural wave that you and me and, and the Solar Brothers, the Solar Ascension Brothers in a way, and many other men who are participating in this moment are on the leading edge of. And it really began in the 1980s with the Mankind Project. So what kind of happened was feminism sort of really began expanding, uh, we'll say quite aggressively in some ways, and it had some good things to say in the 1960s. But by the 1970s, late 1970s, it was kind of apparent that it was beginning to overreach and that they were uh, beginning to have um, deleterious or disempowered, I was going to say disempowering, I don't like this word empowerment because I think it's an owned word, but uh, anyway, disempowering effects on men and men were beginning to fall behind. And what happened out of that was um, a lot of speculation from poets like Robert Bly, men who were into mythology, psychotherapists as well, that realized that what lived at the heart of, uh, of modern society, of Western civilization, was a great spiritual emptiness, which I think we all will acknowledge is, is still there. And they saw at the time that men were getting, beginning to fall behind 
and they wanted to attempt to fill the spiritual hole in men specifically because men had men uh, women you know were, were seemed to be doing well they were on the ascendancy and so men were beginning to decline so they said what's what's wrong with men is there's a, there's a hole in them spiritually and so how can we begin to fill that hole in men in terms of brotherhood and community and these men were called the mythopoetics so they look to ancient myths and fables from the deep, deep past, kind of like what Jordan Peterson does with the Bible. But they looked, you know, to Grimm's fairy tales and, and, and things like that to say, what can we learn about men from the deep, deep past that maybe we've lost touch with? And so Robert Bly's famous book about this is Iron John, which tells a story about a young boy uh, who frees uh, a, an imprisoned man essentially from a cage and uh, and their relationship and the the metaphor there the psychological metaphor is meant to be um, there's a little boy inside you that needs to access your your divine authentic powerful masculine and you need to set that free in yourself to lead a fulfilling life and these are themes i think we'd all recognize now at the time it was it was very novel and so the mankind project in this mythopoetic kind of realm said we're going to construct a weekend initiation experience where we do that for men where men of any age, basically 18 into the, I've, I've seen men into their 70s, can go on this initiation weekend and, full, and be initiated. And when you're initiated as a man, it's not like, you know, tapping someone on, on both shoulders with a sword. You know, you have to go through a vision quest. You have to be tested to your utmost limits to step deeply into and then beyond yourself and really put yourself, your faith in yourself to, um, in a sense, survive. But obviously, there's nothing physical involved with, like, like if you've seen um, the movie 300, the young Leonidas has to go out into the forest and kill a wolf or something like that, has to survive, or the, 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 the snowy forest. That's an initiation, essentially, because that young boy has to draw on something deep within himself and also his gods in order to survive a confrontation with death. And that's how, that's how initiations used to be, like literal, capital D, like death. And if you survive, congratulations, you are now a man because you were able to triumph over the circumstances of a man. Well, obviously, we don't want to be doing that these days, you know, no one wants to go on a weekend retreat. It's like, well, I might die this weekend. Like, it's just not going to be. Later, maybe not, you know. <laughs> yeah. Babe, I love you. But don't come back. <laughs> I tried. It's like, I'd love to. There's actually something kind of like Bronze Age mindset about that, you know. I would, I would imagine so. That seems to be, that seems to be the, 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 the book lately. I haven't, I haven't read it. Everyone keeps telling me to read it. Um, I'll mm. probably get around to it. It's, <laughs> it's one of the books. It has something, it has something to say. For sure. Um, so the Mankind Project was started to create a, an, a modern initiation experience, and uh, it was created by three men. One, uh, one was a psychotherapist, one was a Native American elder, and one was a Green Beret. So you can imagine an ex-Green Beret. So you can imagine these three guys coming together are going to put together something that reflects these different faces of masculinity. And they didn't know what they were doing. They just knew that it needed to happen. And they actually, they actually cracked the code. They actually cracked the code. They created an initiation that is, uh, because I went driving into that, to, to thinking to myself, if I'm not seriously challenged beyond my capability, I won't count this as an initiation. I knew that already. Like, this has got to be hard. I've got to have something hard to overcome. And the credit to the Mankind Project, they have cracked the code and they have found something that's very difficult to do, that anyone can do of almost any physical ability, and that is very, very powerful and transformative. And there is not a man that I've seen, and I've, I've been on the weekend as an initiate that was 2013, and I've staffed three times, and I've never seen a man walk out of there not glowing. It's an incredibly powerful process, because one of the things that's missing 
from our modern age and masculinity is the sense of initiation. But, and so what you end up having is you have, I, I personally believe that there's a switch in the back of every man's mind somewhere, some biological, perhaps even psychological, or perhaps biological switch that is waiting for initiation, some program that needs to be initiated in the mind because initiation was part of our evolutionary upbringing for millions of years, potentially, right? It still is in parts of the world, but here in the West, we don't have initiations. So we're walking around as men, as males, let's say, boys becoming adult males with this switch kind of unflipped. And so when you have adults who are you know, living in their parents' basement or addicted to pornography or alcohol or all the different ills that we talk about, I think part of that is that ultimately it's boy psychology driving a male body. Without initiation to turn boy psychology into man psychology, you get overgrown boys, and that has all these different faces to it that we can get into. Initiation says, you know, when you flip that switch, someone says to you, and, and you say it to yourself, which is more powerful, you are now a man, and you have all the responsibilities of a man. And, you f and you, I felt it in my body. I feel it in my body today. That was a bridge that I crossed, and I can't cross it. That's unrecrossable. And I think that's what, and, I, and there are many, many men in the, in the Renaissance right now that are grappling with the same question. How do we create an initiation that works? that works and that's, and that's safe so that no one's going to get physically hurt. Undoubtedly, there are men doing actively dangerous initiations, and you know that's a thing. I, mean, I can't think of any, but there must be. But no, really, no one wants that. We want to continue to enjoy our lives. And the Mankind Project cracked that code. And so that was my first formal introduction in 2013 into, into men's work, into the, into the Renaissance, which at that point had already been going on for, 30, uh, for about 30 years. And, uh, and so since then, in the seven or eight years since then, I've continued journeying through this world of men's work and all these different faces of it. Uh, I remember in our emails you were saying, you know, uh, messages you were talking about describe the architecture of the Renaissance, which, which I can do. But so my experience in the, ra this, is how old, this, is, this is how great God is. This, is. this is truly how great God is. And I'm really happy to phrase it that way because I think it's true. Is when I was in the rave scene, I would go wandering, like I said, through all these different subcultures and all these different communities, understanding what they're about, what kind of music do they listen to, what kind of clothes do they wear, who are the, who are the, I guess you, for lack of a better word, alphas of these particular communities, how does the structure, and move into the next one and the next one. And so I didn't realize that I was learning to do everything that I'm doing now, because now I've gone, over the past several years, I've gone wandering through all these different aspects and subculture of the Renaissance, and suddenly had this realization you guys are all doing parts of the same thing and it's fucking awesome and it's four years old and the final thing is because I had the context of the Mankind Project and knowing that it's four years old that's why I can tell people you are you are literally riding the leading edge of the wave like and that when people get that when when men really get that this isn't something that just started last week or last year or even with the Manosphere which is how a lot of people found out it's been going on for 40 years we have that much momentum behind what we're doing. When people get that, when they, when men get that, when they know that there's four years of momentum, the shift happens in their mind, and they begin to recognize that uh, that we're all part of something much larger than ourselves. That we are now the inheritors of the wave has propagated forward essentially into our hands, and now it's our job to carry it forward into the world that clearly needs it now. And that's what's really exciting about this moment: is the Renaissance is making it clear to all of us that we as men have something to say to the world and we have to say it and so that's that's what i that's what i communicate to men it's the mankind project that gave it to me and my experience in the rave scene that taught me how to see all these different disparate communities of people and and you and sort of unite them if only in my own mind
So you had this, I don't want to call it a catalyst. I mean, it is a catalyst, but it is, I think the important word is the initiation. And I would have to agree that initiation is one of the, initiation is one of the key things. It's probably the key thing that we're missing. Amongst the brilliant synchronicities that you and I have experienced. <laughs> That's another one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a post basically saying, I think I dropped, yeah, I dropped it yesterday, saying you've been lied to. Mm. Like, you have, you have wholeheartedly been lied to. Mm-hmm. You speak, you talk about boys, right? You speak about the boys trapped in man's bodies, uninitiated. Male bodies, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you you see that even, dare I say you say that even in this, you see that even on this, some of the groups in this forefront. Oh, for sure. I, I, what, I, what I see a lot of the time is a lot of leisure forward sort of jargon. Hmm, interesting. Say more about that. So, I, I see trying to create grand strategy not for the sake of being their their greatest self, which takes pain and mm-hmm. takes hardship and takes initiation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see grand strategy as how, how to sort of like check some of the boxes for having a good bank like like you like you say having a good bank account you know putting more weight on the on the deadlift putting more weight on the military press you know being ha- having bigger more bulging muscles like i see this grand strategy of how did you just enough to sort of look like a man and maybe sort of act like a man but not be a man right i'm saying you've been lied to because this whole notion of i put you know either your relaxed or you're aggressive or either you're hyper focused or you're meditative like no mm-hmm. no those are those are not those are not mutually exclusive by any means and when you think of boys like so you, like okay when you're a kid like hey mom you know i scraped my knee playing football but it's okay like there's there's like a meme about this like kids in 2000 versus kids in 2020 like mm-hmm. hey mom you know is that the i was playing football and i scraped my knee but you know, I disinfected and it's fine. I'm going to go watch Spongebob now. Whereas like kids, kids now are like, oh, the iPad's not working. Like, yeah. <laughs> like the, the muscular doge and the crying doge meme, you know, that's one of the many phenomenal um, sort of uses of that meme format. But um, b- boys will still seek leisure. They're not, they're not trying, like they'll, they'll emulate men. They'll play men. They'll pretend to be, you know, pretend to be Goku from Dragon Ball Z for argument's sake, right? But yeah. they're not actually, most of the time, they're not they're cat- nine times out of ten, sometimes you see some like prodigy little kids, like Lionel Messi kicking around a soccer ball. Like, okay, that guy's clearly going to be something. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't, you don't see uh, exemplifying these things that they're sort of pretending to be. And you almost see that still today. You see a lot of pretend. You see a lot of brand strategy to be relaxed because boys ultimately aren't going to put themselves through this incredible road, not even initiation, but a road to initiation, where it is uncomfortable, it is grueling, it is unpleasant, it is suffering. I don't, I don't see that. I, 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 I explained at the end of the post too, like this whole like avoiding because maybe I think a lot of this has to do with like the bodybuilding lore that's sort of like 
a, a pretty core pillar of the sphere. And I think, I, and I've, I've talked about this on Evil Academy's podcast too, but like bodybuilding being a sort of like a center pillar of the sphere is fine. That's great. Like, you know, build muscle. It, it takes, it takes discipline. It takes the mindset of a gardener actually, because yeah, because it's like, it's, if, if you don't get the right amount of food or right amount of sleep, sometimes it's just like, Oh, it might not turn out as well. That's right. Uh, but it's also on the flip side of things. It's, it's perpetuating the sort of fragile nature because bodybuilding itself is fragile because you need all those parameters. So I'm seeing that sort of fuel this, this comfort culture and i sort of wrote like i don't think i've ever felt more alive than the moments where like i felt like i was drowning Mm -hmm. like i was actually drowning and i had no choice but to keep my head above water like those moments are i I, those are my favorite moments in life yep as a man as me just you know me not involving other people just those moments are my favorite moments in life and i I remember like having this grin on my face, just all of my being was suffering, but I got like, a slight grimace on my face and tears almost rolling down my eyes like that. That to me is, is manhood. And I think I see so, I see people in this fear avoiding that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, guys, what the hell are you doing? What, what are you doing? So to hear this initiation being put forward and, I was also thinking in the hours sort of leading up to this podcast, you know, I, I noticed the hours leading up to this podcast certainly felt like the hours leading up to, uh, to a performance, actually, mm-hmm. to a performance on stage. It's just like you're very detached. It's, it's much different than preparing for a fight. Preparing for a fight, you get centered, you practice, you have to, you have to like put yourself in one certain mode. Whereas a performance, like it takes a lot of detachment. Like you don't really talk to anybody the day leading up to it. Um, you're really pensive and really contemplative. You're you're actually really detached from your immediate experience. And I remember, like, I was sort of brushing my teeth and thinking, you know, we as men don't really have, like, this, with this this lack of, like, immediate warrior culture where, like, you're not shooting someone from afar. Like, having to stab someone with a spear to save your village. Like, there's no initiation. Like, there's no, I didn't really think of the word initiation, but there's no grand process mm-hmm. in order to get from a boy to a man, in order to get that, true thematic manhood and so you're saying like the, the beginning the very beginning of this 40-year wave that you've sort of you've captured you realize like this started 40 years ago like there's it's not these sporadic movements it's all the same thing that started with the mankind project 40 years ago and what i, I one of the main things i love about that too is because they didn't just take a warrior they didn't just grab three groom berets no they grabbed three sort of pillars of manhood, three different skill sets, mindsets, and the embodiment of the mastery of those three. Mm-hmm. That's abundantly important because I think with some of what we're seeing today, it's like, just go back to being a barbarian. Like, no. Like, <laughs> barbarians lack precision. Barbarians lack nuance. Barbarians lack understanding. Like, they're very good in the war sense. They're very good at being high thumos, but that's not everything about being a man. Mm-hmm. Um, So you have you 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 figure this out through the Mankind Project. You you go on your travels. When, when did the travel end, and when did this become the I'm going to do a podcast? Like when did it materialize into the three dimensional world? Because it sounds like this this renaissance of men, this this whole this whole movement of forty years, it's been it's something greater than ourselves. It's not it's something not of our own accord. Like there are deliberate actions of ours, and there are pivotal deliberate actions of ours. But from every all the synchronicities, especially in the solar sphere that we talk about every single day, 
Sorry, I talk about I talk about the Great Conjunction every single podcast. I'm sorry that is never going to stop. So if any of you listeners are rolling your eyes at that and you don't want to hear about that, this is not the podcast for you. Um, <laughs> but we talk about those synchronicities every single day, and it so it sounds like the Renaissance of Men project within you has been happening since. Let's say your bar mitzvah. Potentially, yeah. And. But it eventually came to this three-dimensional, I'm going to start a podcast, I'm going to start a, a page, I'm going to start interviewing the great figures of this 40-year process. Ongoing now, now ongoing movement and shift in consciousness and balancing of consciousness. What, what did that, that transition look like? Mm-hmm. Well, I just I want to I want to uh, just make clear that the Mankind Project didn't start the Renaissance. It was sort of this the mythopoetic guys, the the Robert Blys, the Sam Keens, you know the the I think James Hillman probably had something to do with it. There's another name, a Morin Gillette, King Warrior, Magician Lover. The Mankind Project was part of that. There's another guy named uh, Sterling. I guess he was doing something early on in the '80s as well. So that was uh, that was the Mankind Project was one and, and probably. You know, they've reached 70,000, 75,000 men around the world over 40 years. So they're a huge part of it, but they didn't necessarily start it. They were part of a, excuse me, a cultural movement that kind of started it. So not to give too much credit to the Mankind Project and to put them in the proper context. Um, so when did the when did the Renaissance of Men start? So um, I finished, it, it's, it's noteworthy that my travels began uh, with the end of a relationship with the needing to leave the relationship, and that's how they kind of ended too, that I found my way into a relationship in New Zealand with a woman I loved very much, and it became very clear as I was living there with her for about nine months to a year that our lives were not heading in the in the same direction, that we wanted different things, and that was really, really difficult to, to recognize that. Um, she had already had kids who I loved, four girls who were very dear to me, and still are. One of them just had a birthday yesterday, actually. And then, uh, but she had done her duty as a mom, and I wanted to be a father. And she wanted to have a career for the first time, and I, I, I helped cultivate that. I helped, I helped uh, encourage her in that direction. And so, it was one of the hardest things that I ever had to do to recognize that, like, if I stay here in this situation, as much as I love her, as much as I love these girls, as much as I love New Zealand, what will end up happening is um, everything will get inverted that she'll be working and then I'll be the stay-at-home, I'll be the stay-at-home mom. Mm, yeah. And everything I knew as a man wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't allow me to do that. I knew that I would, in some sense, die inside as well right. um, because it wasn't aligned with me anymore. So, so I left New Zealand. Um, it was a heartbreaking process to go through, but again, it was something that I needed to, I needed to fully commit to. And, and uh, I met a, a man named, his name is Eddie. Eddie's one of my best friends, and I met him from the Mankind Project. And that guy was... The, to give you a sense of the power of brotherhood, you know, I wasn't sure what was going on, and when I met Ed, Eddie, we were staffing together. I was like, and he, and he was a dating coach, and like, bro, I just need you to get you some insight into this relationship and help me see around, see around corners, and and he really helped me see some things that I had been missing. And then when I finally made the decision to leave, that guy was there with me every single day, supporting me. Like I was sending him text messages, calling, just to try and extract myself from. A, I thought we were going to get married. We weren't engaged yet, but I thought I was going to live in New Zealand and. And that's when I were going to get married, and I was going to be, you know, the girls of their dad was still in their lives, you know what I mean? So I wasn't taking on that fatherly role, and he was a good guy, and he and I got along. But, you know, I thought I was going to be a stepfather to these girls, and I would, I was, had started, and had initiated the, the process of becoming a resident of New Zealand. Like, am I going to, am I going to be, you know, dual citizenship housing? I was thinking about all these things. And so having to unwind all those threads as gracefully as I could, 
because I could have just picked up and left. Like, bye, see ya. But it's like, I cared so much for New Zealand, everything the country had given me. I cared so much for this woman that I was seeing. I cared so much for the girls and this entire social circle that had accepted me in. I spent, I had to spend, and I, I chose to spend six months unwinding every thread as gracefully as I could and making sure that the parting was as clean as I could make it and as loving as I could make it. And uh, that's one of the great things I'm really pleased to have done because it meant that I could leave and still be in integrity with these these um, these people that I cared about, that I loved very much and still do. So that was that took me through until February, uh, the end of January 2020. And I moved back to Phoenix in February of 2020. I was staying with my dad. And I moved into my apartment on uh, March 21st, 2020, which was exactly when the lockdowns hit in Phoenix. That's tomorrow. What's that? That's tomorrow. That's tomorrow, yeah. So tomorrow's my one-year anniversary of being in this apartment. I had a, I had managed to just buy a mattress and a box spring, and uh, that's all the furniture I had before the world shut down. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Right when you get home, right when... You know, I would imagine if you're, you're home, <laughs> I would imagine right when you were getting home that part of you would want to explore home again with brand new eyes and the government's basically saying no. Right. Um, and now you're alone in a room with yourself and a lot of people wouldn't be able to handle that. Like they would, they would want to do the exact opposite of being alone in a room with themselves. Mm-hmm. They would want to be out and about with friends, they'd want to be out in nature, some people would want to be in bars, some people would be coming to me to serve them drinks, um, you know, that's... If they could. Yeah, if they could, but they can't. So now, in the past year, you're alone in a room, so how did this process start? How did this creative process start? Well, I had, for many years, wanted to get in shape, but getting in shape was very difficult to do on the road. I would go through periods of time where I would be you know, hiking and doing lots of outdoor stuff and lose a bunch of weight and then I'd be in the cities doing, you know, hanging out, being social and gain a bunch of weight and it was a very yo-yo kind of process because that's how it works. But I'd always felt this call to be in really great shape but was never really in a place to do it. And so when I got back uh, to, when I decided I was going to come back to America, I had discovered this thing called 75 Hard, which I think probably most people have heard about right now, but in case you haven't, it's a, it's a program where for 75 days, it's created by Andy Frizzella, and I heard about it through Ryan Mickler's Order of Man podcast, and I think Sean Whalen as well. Uh, all of those guys are great. 75 Hard is for 75 days, uh, you have to do six things. You have to do two workouts a day of 45 minutes each. Uh, one of the workouts needs to be outside, and most people for that will go walking, but you know you can do whatever you want. You have to drink a gallon of water. You have to follow some sort of healthy diet. You have to take a progress picture in the mirror. No alcohol, and you have to um, and you have to read ten pages in a book. Ten pages in a physical book. And I think those are the six things. There's probably one more that I'm missing, but you know those are pretty difficult. And I came back, and I, first thing I did when I landed back in Phoenix, which February 14, I started doing 75 hard because I'd put on a bunch of weight, you know, going through this process in New Zealand because I was essentially grieving, you know what I mean? Just, you know, whatever I needed to do to get myself through that situation. And so uh, I, I, I threw myself into 75 hard, and it was literally one of the best decisions I ever made for myself because when the world started melting down, um, I had something that I could control. I was like, you know what I can control? I can control what I eat because I had already had about a month of tracking calories 
I have this ritual that I'm going to do that I'm going to take this progress picture. Okay, I can't go to the gym anymore. I remember when people started wearing masks in the gym and shit. Um, not everybody. This was like in February or something. People started wearing masks. So I remember saw that going on. It's like I can't go to the gym anymore. My, even, the, even the gym at my dad's apartment complex was, was closed. Just this little like one room kind of thing, you know. So I was like, okay, well I guess I'm going to start doing body weight stuff in my apartment and go for a walk at night, you know, which wasn't a big deal. And that, while everything else was melting down, I could hold on to that. And on some days when things got really uncertain, like I didn't, I didn't buy what was going on, you know, uh, socially. I didn't buy the headlines. I, I mean, I just, I just don't in general. But I remember I was in living in a new town. I mean, I grew up here, but I hadn't lived here for 20 years. And but I didn't know anyone besides my dad and some of my family members. I had no supplies, no preparation. I had to start cobbling together furniture bit by bit. And I got really afraid of the whole zombie apocalypse kind of scenario where it's like, if there's some sort of mass wave of panic, like, I'm screwed. I, I mean, firearm, I couldn't get a firearm because I couldn't, uh, I didn't have my ears and a driver's license yet. Um, I, I, you know, stocking up on food was a thing. Like, thank God I went to the store and bought toilet paper before everyone started freaking out about that. Like, you know, it's, and, and, you know, I just had to, I, I, there's nothing I can tr control and I could feel myself thinking, gosh, I'd really like to play video games and eat pizza and drink beer right now. And because of 75 hard, I was like, no, I'm going to do this instead. And so I, I kept, I managed to hold on through that process, you know, even if it meant, it wasn't at the time, they've revised it since, and at the time it was like, you just have to do two workouts a day. So some, they, they can they now say 45 minutes. I don't think they said 45 minutes at the time. So even if it meant that I did like 30 minutes of yoga, like I counted that, you know, and I would do body weight stuff with TRX straps, and occasionally I would go do um, sprints in a park nearby. But, you know, just enough to keep going. And as the weight continued falling off, I started feeling myself really change. Like all the stuff that I had accumulated in my body and my psyche started leaving as it, as it departed and making notes on the scale every day. And I was religious about it. Just seeing that downward sloping curve was just the best feeling. And so I, during a time when I really very easily, like I had just come out of this incredibly difficult six-month period of leaving a relationship, moving literally across the Pacific Ocean, not owning anything, not knowing anybody, you know, not knowing what the next step was. I could have absolutely just gone to shit and gone to pieces. But I, I decided like, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to push through this. I'm going to save myself. I'm going to save my own life. And I did. And it's one of the greatest gifts I ever, I ever gave to myself. Because that led in that that this experience of you know losing 40 pounds while the rest of the rest of the world is putting on 40 or 50 pounds, you know, was a huge turning point in my life, and let and it sort of fed into the renaissance of men. Wow, it's it's, it's it started with restraint. It started with you. It started with it started with the renaissance of yourself, really. Yeah, I, I mean, met myself. That makes an abundant amount of sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and through that came the idea, through that process of resistance, or oh no, uh, well what ended up happening was um, I found my way into um, Alexander Cortez's inner circle, his Telegram group. Ah, yeah. So what happened was this was I I, don't, I had followed Ajax. I had kind of gotten to know a bit of the Manosphere, and I think it was 2018. My exposure to the Manosphere started with. Um, Hunter Drew, at the time he was Hunter Drew, now he's Zach Small, his book, 31 Days to Masculinity, I think Amazon might have suggested it to me. And then from there, I ended up discovering uh, Rich Cooper's talk, 
at the 21 convention called Be Better. And I remember when I saw that talk, this would have been in summer of 2018, I recognized what an enormous shift that was in my life. Because here was a man, you know, Rich Cooper, he's a big, fit, bald, handsome-looking dude, you know what I mean? Standing up in front of other men at this conference that is obviously very well targeted to men and has, has a vibe of high integrity, the 21 convention, giving a talk about things that I was familiar with. And then that's when I realized, like, oh, this world of men's work is so much larger than I realized. It's not just the Mankind Project. Here's this whole other world that I soon discovered was called the Manosphere. And once I began digging into the Manosphere and the 21 Convention and Anthony Johnson and how it caught in the Red Pill community and Rolo Tomasi and then how that ties into Reddit and how that tied into the pickup community, that's when I started putting all the pieces together. But just inside my own mind of this world, I didn't think to do anything with it at the time. So that's how I discovered Alexander Cortez. And then so after I had gone on the 75 hard journey, sometime around, I want to say like April or May of 2020, so less than a year ago, I found my way into Ajax's Telegram group, which at the time was less than 200 people. And so here I am having just completed my hero's journey from travel, having done all these things like the startup and having experienced all these different aspects of spirituality, including when I was traveling, having done all the self-work and having gotten gotten in great shape essentially under duress, I come into this community of very strong men and I find my voice. I'd have no problem speaking up on behalf of the things that are important to me and speaking them very confidently because, you know, I know how to write and I know how to express myself. And suddenly I find myself very slowly I don't, I don't know how I, how I would phrase it. Maybe some guys who were in there could phrase it at the time, but I, I found myself, I guess, becoming in a sense of like a leader of the community or acquiring some procedure. Respect is probably the word. Yeah. Like I see the way, I see men start reaching out to me and talking to me, and I start recognizing I'm making a valuable contribution to Alexander Cortez, his Telegram channel. Like Alexander Cortez is like, he's the man. He's the guy. You know, and so here I am coming in this community and finding my voice in here, and then I meet my friend Jameson, uh, and maybe you've talked with Jameson, Jameson Fletcher, and you know he introduced me to a lot of other communities that would become an enormous influence on me, and he was the first guy I really connected with. And where it all came to a head was in July of July of last year. I was reflecting on the world going absolutely insane, and I was like, I still want to travel. Like it was starting to look very much like you know, I thought this COVID thing would blow over in a couple months after people didn't buy it. You know what I mean? But people bought it. And I was like, yeah, right. Shows what I know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll yeah. get, that, we'll go, get that separately. There's, 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 enough, there's enough takes in literature about this. It's We, we won't get into it, but we that that could be... You do a whole other podcast about the situation in California, but please continue. Oh, well, thank God I was in Arizona at the time where at least, you know, things slowed down. I remember there were some times during the early days where I would go for my evening walks doing 75 hard. And, you know, I live in the center of, I I live towards the center of the city and I would look down some major streets and Phoenix is essentially a giant grid. So you can look down any of the major streets and see for miles. And I would go for a walk like on Sunday night. And I remember, you know, I grew up here and there's 4 million people in the city. The streets were empty for miles. It was it was like it was very post apocalyptic all the lights are on, you know what I mean? But it's very post apocalyptic. So I've gotten to see the city come back to life since then, but I was still doing my walks. Like I don't know what y'all are afraid of. I'm sure I got some strange looks walking around in the middle of the night on Sunday nights without a mask on, but you know, whatever. Did you look at uh, like a madman that like issued like well, Yeah, they look at you like a madman, like you're some form of military or like police official or like just 
what, he, what does he know that we don't? You know, <laughs> it's, it's it's very it's just only it only falls in one of those three categories. I don't wear a mask. I'm on Bart. I'm the one guy not wearing a mask on Bart. People look at me like, what the fuck is that guy doing? And like with rage, with confusion, and with apprehension, and with curiousness, it's 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 or curiosity. It's it's strange. It's very very strange. Yeah, that's incomprehensible to me that anyone would look at someone not wearing a mask and be like. What planet is he on? Like, I'm on planet reality. <laughs> so. Exactly. Do you, do you, if you had a 98% of your test, you'd say, that's pretty dang good. Say 98% survival rate, just completely. Then you look at the actual markers of the people who didn't survive, and it's just very plain as day why they didn't survive. So it's like, yeah. it's. I even see, I watch television, and... Even I, I don't wear masks. And subconsciously, I'll think, well, wear the masks. That's terrifying. When you watch TV, you feel like wearing a mask. No, not like I see. I see TV characters, not like I watch a movie. Rather. Oh, that's the whole. Oh, thing. I get it. Yeah, so you watch a movie, and like, well, wear their masks. Because like, wait a second, no, that's not normal. You don't even wear a mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was at the dinner at a restaurant mm, earlier this week, and with a friend, and there were a couple TVs on, and one of the shows was in the background. You see all these characters, like it's a cop show or a medical drama or something like that, and they're all fucking wearing masks. And I just wanted to go on the TV and just with a bat, like, take the fucking things off. Like, because it's fucking... <laughs> <off. So. laughs> pulling it off of the TV screen, yeah. No, not acceptable. Um, okay, anyway, so just to get back to the story, so I found myself in, you know, as, as tra- international travel, like, I would still really love to go to Saudi Arabia and go to Russia and go to Mexico. Those are the three places I'd really like to go. And I was recognizing that this dream of traveling was getting further and further away, and I actually had something to say about it. It's like, you know what? And I, and I, I had recognized that I had stopped posting on Instagram. Uh, I had a personal Instagram account with my travels. I had stopped posting on Facebook because I didn't want to say something wrong and get canceled. You know what I mean? I didn't want to say, you're not being properly you're not being properly deferential to whoever today's, you know, identified victim group is. Like, I didn't post a black square on my Instagram. I said, fuck that. You know, I just, because I post travel photography. Like, I, I, I won't be shamed or bullied into doing what the crowd does. I also know that about myself. Like, I just, I don't allow myself to be bullied in that way. So, rather than doing that, I just stepped away from Instagram and stepped away from Facebook and all that. And I was getting really frustrated with myself. It's like, you know what, I've got a lot to say because I can see myself saying it in Ajax Inner Circle. And guys appreciate it. And, they, and they're grateful for it. And, and uh, you know, I'm being recognized and I'm stepping into myself. I have a responsibility as someone who has things to say, who's thought through them, who's thoughtful and articulate, you know, and, and considerate and can see all sides to speak up and say something. So I wrote a blog post called um, To Lose the World and Gain My Soul. And it's one of the best things. I sent it to you today. It's one of the best things I've ever written, if not the best thing I've ever written. And... It lays out, this is, these are all the things that I've done, done in my life. These are the places I've been. This is the versions, the versions of myself I've been. You know, this is, you know, I, 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 if you want to cancel me and you call me, when you want to call me racist or something, I've been through 33 countries on six continents. You know, I was dating a Maori woman in New Zealand. I, I dated a Filipino woman in, in San Francisco for, for 10 years. I, you know, I was in the African American, the black theme dorm, African American theme dorm at my university. I started my startup with a, you know, with a, with a black man, essentially. Like, you know, and so if you're going to cancel me, like if you're going to call me racist, these aren't the behaviors of a racist person. So let's just get this out of the way right now. This is what I have to say. And I've been through all these countries in the world, and I've seen the world. I've seen real diversity. Here's pictures of me in, in uh, Shanghai, and here's pictures of me in Vanuatu, and here's pictures of me in Colombia and India. You know, here's all the different spiritual traditions I've explored. So if you're going to call me bigoted somehow, 
you don't, I'm not going to give you that ammo. This is who I really am. You can't make that charge stick. And then this is what I have to say. And I said it. And that post went absolutely viral around the world. Like people from nonprofits, because at that point I was part of uh, Jack Murphy's Liminal Order. Jack Murphy had 60,000 followers on Twitter. He shared it on his Twitter account. Um, I believe Ajak might have shared it as well. Uh, it got to people at nonprofits, and suddenly I had spoken my truth out into the world quietly and clearly and without intent to be, con con I expressed myself very confrontationally there. That was the energy behind it, but I don't think it comes through, it doesn't come through in the writing. It's like that was the feeling inside me when I wrote it. And when I wrote this, this piece, which I'm very proud of, and it still stands up today, and I'm very, I'm, I'm very grateful, I could finally see myself. It's like, oh my gosh, I've been on this journey, and now it's become encapsulated in this thing that I've written. And I can see myself, and men can see me, and it's getting out there into the world, and people are coming to me and looking at me and saying, thank you. It's like, I have something to say, and I have something to offer. And I found that as a result of finding my voice through my journey as a man. And so the Renaissance of Men was born out of that, was this recognition, I have something to say specifically to men. That was where uh, I had the idea of doing two different things at once. One was called Begin Within, which was going to be coaching for men. And I think the Renaissance of Men was going to be the podcast. And I finally realized, like, well, why, if I'm going to do coaching for men and call it Begin Within and Renaissance of Men and do it a podcast, like, why not just make it all the Renaissance of Men? So I discarded the Begin Within. Actually, I just gave the domain to someone uh, recently, actually. There's an interesting story around that. And I just threw myself into the Renaissance of Men. And for August and September was when I started developing the brand uh, what is this really about? Who am I trying to reach? Uh, what am I trying to say with this? How am I going to create a brand that accurately reflects me and that isn't me pretending to be something? How can I create a brand that strong and capable men will look at and see themselves reflected in and men who are trying to be stronger will look at and feel aspirational? And so I spent weekends thinking about it and writing about it because I do have that marketing background uh, to create what I did. And the podcast was... You know, I've got to start talking to men in this world so that the so that the men who want to come into it can see it. It's also a great way of marketing this idea. Like it's the Renaissance of Men is not about me. The Renaissance of Men is is about all the men who are doing it, seeing themselves as part of all doing the, the same thing. Like yes, you know, I I do coaching and I do other things, but like really what I want people to get is, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're part of the Solar Ascension, if you're part of the Manosphere, if you're part of the Red Pill community or MGTOW, or, you know, if you're still doing pickup stuff or whatever it is you're doing, or if you're doing the green martyrdom or you're doing martial arts or you're just curious about masculinity, you are part of the Renaissance of Men. You are part of the Renaissance of Men. Like, it's again, it's, it's not about me. It's about us. It's about us. And if the one thing my journey has taught me over the past, say, 15 years is I believe in men because I learned to believe in myself. Because if you were to have seen me eight years ago, because there's a photo of me from eight years ago versus me today, you would not think, and I also would not think, that that guy would go on to be someone that could help bring men together. And it's because I didn't give up on myself. I never gave up on myself. And that's what I want to communicate to men. Do not give up on yourselves. Stick with whatever it is you're doing, as long as it calls to you, until you see it all the way through and you wrestle it to the ground. On my first Poetry for Men episode, um, I, I did I, the poem, uh, The Man Watching by Rainer Maria Rilke. And he references the story from the Bible where uh, Jacob 
wrestles with an angel and he's, he's out in the wilderness and an angel comes with him comes to him and he wrestles with the angel throughout the night and then in the morning he wrestles the angel to the ground and the angel finally pulls an angel on him but you know he wrestles the angel into submission and says now I want a blessing and be, and the meaning of that story is you know these things come into our lives and that we struggle with them we struggle mightily with them and there are so many occasions where we want to give up on whatever the thing is it may just it may be a relationship that we want to leave that we can't don't feel ready to leave or maybe a path or a passion or a pursuit or a dream like that's the angel that has come into our lives and don't give up on it don't give up the fight keep fighting and my story with myself is like i said i'm the guy that just never gave up you know you know i'm not i don't think of myself like a jocko willing kind of like good kind of dude kind of dude you know what i mean i but i do know that i have more like diesel power like i'm not going to fucking quit like even my startup even when things were really really bad i was 21 years old we had hired 40 or 50 people and the dot com crash is happening and people are leaving and things are all going going wrong i was the last founder to quit like i'm not giving up on this i'm going to see this all the way through and that kind of that kind of spirit you know, has really has really informed so much of my life, and that's what I want to communicate to men. Like, yes, this is a really difficult moment for all of us, you know, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. But we can't give up. We have to keep wrestling with the situation, because I believe in you, and I will tell that to your face. I'm telling that to your face right now, Arthur. Like, I believe in you, and on behalf of you, all the men around who are listening to this, like, I believe in you. Do not give up. Because when you see that this renaissance is real, you'll hear me say this over, it's real. And the reason why I know it's real is because if it were something that were just kind of being like a, created consciously by people, when 2020 came around, 2020 when it knocked it all out, like it locked out everything else that was false. Everything that was false died or began to die in 2020. When 2020 came around, the renaissance accelerated. It accelerated, had the opposite effect. Like for you, Arthur, like you started your podcast. Many of the Solar Ascension guys started looking around and realizing like 2020 showed them something's wrong and they leaned harder into it rather than backing out of it. That's how I know it's real. And so, you know, what I, what I tell men is understand what it is you're doing, the sacredness and the importance of what you're doing and believe in yourselves, be believe in each other and, and we'll get there. That's an infinite surge of energy. I mean, that's an infinite, that's, that's an infinite surge of energy that clearly manifested within you just now. Because it is real. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's plain as day right now. Mm -hmm. Like, if, if, we, if we don't take the second to second guess ourselves or you know, be overly rational with, you know, tangible, physical, three-dimensional presence. It's as real as the bed you sleep on. It's as real as the trees outside. Mm -hmm. And every man feels it. And I'm seeing a lot more glowing men these days, which is, you know, even here in dead San Francisco Bay Area, people we see men rising from the ashes mm -hmm. surrounded by the pro probably the most concentrated hub of cancel culture mm -hmm. and just distorted reality being fostered and just pure mental illness really like at the end of the day it's just just mental illness mm 
Mm-hmm. Just horrifying. Mental illness gone so normalized that the people who are not mentally ill are seen as the mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's evident even here. I'm really fascinated. I, I, I know this is going somewhere, and I know this is going somewhere positive. Mm-hmm. Because that's the other thing that we feel plain as day. Because, of course, around, of course it's positive, right? Of course it's a, you know, it's a renaissance event, a rebirth. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's... And it's Again, I, I say this not as sort of a new agey form of response, but it is this infinite amount of energy surrounding that we're all tapping into and is all feeding into us. And we're all sort of the vessels of that. Everyone's sort of creating in this sphere. I've noticed it. I've seen it in other people speaking. I've seen it even in the smaller accounts of people sort of tiptoeing in the content creation. They say something brilliant. I'm like, ah, oh, there it is. Mm-hmm. There it is. Mm-hmm. Good. I know this is going somewhere positive because it is a renaissance. I have, I, have, I have no idea what each step looks like, though. <laughs> right. And, I'm, and I'm, obviously none of us do, but I think some of us have an idea. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned multiple times. And before I go on, Regardless, like, yeah, it's, it's not about you. You, you said that my, my page is blood and rain isn't about me. Like it's, it started, like it's, it sort of started as like an expression of me going back to my path. And, you know, I've had people ask me, how do I start a path of blood and rain? I'm sort of like, what? Like, that's, that's not that this is, this is supposed to be an expression of me sort of returning to myself and, People saw it as something more than that. And I'm seeing people write poetry with the words blood and brain in it now. It's great. And I'm humbled and I'm honestly sometimes confused um, because I never really saw it as something like that. And But I guess it was in essence that fills up most of my being, really. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what... Yeah, but I, I, I don't think it's necessarily completely localized me either and that's what i've noticed recently but the renaissance of men being coined this is your work and one of the things that i love about your work is you're gathering not only you're gathering the men you're gathering the other men who are speaking the the wisdom of the renaissance of men whether that be jack donovan or whether that be a howling boy, or whether that be Jonathan West. Mm-hmm. You're gathering all the ideals, you're gathering all the practices, and you're gathering a practice in a podcast that's sort of parallel, but also under the same umbrella as a renaissance of men. And there's, there's, there's so many, the thing is, there's, there's so many things I want to ask you about the next steps about it. Mm-hmm. Because it is, while... It is not of your own accord in some ways. It also is part of your deliberate orchestration. It's both. Like, it really is both. It is receiving and being a vessel, and it is deliberate decision-making and deliberate creation and deliberate 
planting the right seeds in which to flourish and surprise yourself and then do more with accordingly. Mm -hmm. the, the, the two things, first of all, that's absolutely incredible. It, it's, it, I, I, I call your podcast the gold standard of podcasting this year because I believe that to be so. Thank you. It means a lot to me. It's, 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 it's my pleasure to say, and, but it's also it's easy to say because I, I see that as the truth because that's, that's, that's the home note. Like mm -hmm. I'm, Blood and Rain is sort of a, is a branch of the Renaissance of Men. Um, soul cast, uh, evil cast, or all these sort of like lanes of the Renaissance of Men. You're saying, no, we are a part of the Renaissance of Men. That's what this is. You are the orchestrator of that. And that's incredible. That's absolutely. Just, it's, it's my favorite work on Instagram. I'm, I'm, I'm gushing right now, but I'm gushing for a reason. It's, no, thank you. I appreciate that. It's, it's my pleasure. It's truly my pleasure. And... One of the things I love, so maybe speaking about one of the seeds you initially planted that has grown, and also speaking about an idea that you've mentioned in your podcast about the future. So one, one bit of the past, one bit of the future, I really want to address. Like I'm super curious about and I want to speak more about or just help flourish it. Mm -hmm. One is the recording I played at the beginning of this podcast, your recording, and, and your first Poetry for Men podcast, you speaking about when's the last time you read a poem? <laughs> the last time that you did it on your, of your own accord, not for school, do you see poetry as something to, to speak to women with? No, there's poetry for men. We are so detached from narrative when narrative really is real life. And poetry being the more cryptic, more subtext-based, nuanced methodology of expressing so. Where does your passion for poetry and language come from, and how do you see that as so in, like, just mandatory, really, for the Renaissance of Men? I would see it as mandatory, first of all. Well, that's awesome. Um, well, the poetry podcast, that's a really interesting, interesting story about that. I, uh, I read this book called The Soul's Code by James Hillman, and James Hillman uh, was a psychotherapist who trained under Carl Jung. Real, he's a real genius. And at the end of that book, I read it, 2019. At the end of that book, he said that there's a, a book by Robert, uh, uh, by him, Robert Bly, and Michael Mead uh, that's called Rag The Rag and Bone Shop uh, of the Heart Poetry for Men. I'm like, oh, well, I've been on my journey as a man. I better get a copy of that book. And so when I got back to the United States, I got a, you know, in February of 2020, I got a copy of that book. And I just started reading it at night before I went to bed. And when I started the podcast, I've often said that everything I learned about podcasting, everything I know about podcasting, I learned from Ryan Nickler. And uh, because the order of man, to me, you know, that's the that's the gold standard of, of podcasts. Maybe it's not strictly about the renaissance of men in that way. It's sort of, it is in its own way, you know, for sure. And he does this great thing where he has three different kinds of episodes per week. Uh, he does an interview podcast, an Ask Me Anything podcast, and then a Friday Field Notes where he, uh, where he just kind of, expounds on his thoughts every week and so he's been consistent in doing that for five years i guess for three a week and i guess he did a post recently where it's been six years actually and he hasn't missed a single episode in five years which is like unreal level of dedication like that guy's a machine mad respect to that guy yeah he's he's like he's a really important he's a really important dude and that's another excuse me that's another example of a guy who you know, if you look at his past or his history, there's there's nothing prior to when he started the Order of Man that would indicate that he should be doing that. But he threw himself into it and he committed to it. 
and now like and now he's flying and there's so many different examples of that like jack donovan was on my podcast and he says at the start of the podcast like when he wrote the way of men i think it was in 2012 you know he was just a guy who was angry he was a truck driver his own words he was a truck driver who was angry at the world and would come home and writing that book on weekends and he literally was a truck driver he was delivering you know treadmills you know what i mean so in this, and, and he said like in the book in fire in the dark his new book which i highly recommend he says i shouldn't have been the guy to write uh, the way of men but i was and in the same way there are so many examples of you know you're talking about right now you see people writing poems with blood and rain you know, and you might identify it and say, like, there's nothing in me that would say that I would be a leader in this way. But you know what? That's true for me. And that, you know, I didn't look at myself coming in in this way. Like, I discovered my leadership capacity. Same with Ryan Mickler. Same with Jack Donovan. Anthony Johnson started the 21 Convention as, like, a dating thing. I don't think that he ever expected to be president of the Manosphere. And that's what's so fucking cool about this, is if you talk to all the guys in the solar sphere, like Solbra, you know, whoever they are, pick, pick, your, pick who your favorite account you follow. None of these guys started their lives saying like, you know what? I'm gonna lead a, I'm gonna lead a, lead a revolution. <laughs> <laughs> I made a few. I, I, you know, it's a dream of mine to lead a revolution. I said aside, no, we're all just find ourselves in this moment, being blessed with the gift of whatever it is we have to create, whether it be aesthetics or whether it have to be words or music or or leadership or podcasts or coaching or whatever it is. We find ourselves suddenly tasked with the opportunity and responsibility of leadership to do something that's really fucking cool waking up men around the world for perhaps the first time in history like how cool is that you don't get to live this again this is now this is right now this wasn't 50 years ago this wasn't 20 years ago this won't be 20 years from now it's happening now and we're on uh, you know the energy in me is like this wave like it's it's happening we're living it we're living it. it's the best thing in the world that's why i'm so excited to work on it I don't know that I, I, you had another question, you talked about the past and the future, and I think I totally spiraled off into a whole thing. You asked about the, the poetry, the poetry. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. So when I, when I started the interview podcast, I was like, you know, I need another, I need another episode um, to do per week. What can I, I didn't, at the time, I didn't believe that anyone would, would listen to me just talk randomly about something for 30 minutes. So I was like, what can I, what can I do that would be interesting? And, and I think I just saw the book. I'm like, I'll read a poem. Okay, cool. I'll try that. And it was just like, it just kind of worked. I sat down to do it, and I sat down to read the first poem, which is The Man Watching, which I mentioned. And I, I, I dug into the poem, and once I started taking the poem apart I, apart, I realized, oh, wow, this is actually really cool. There's a lot going on in here, and I can see it. You know, it's if I wanted to do something around, like, art appreciation, for example, you know, which is a thought I've had. Like, we're going to talk about a painting. Well, I don't know anything about art appreciation. You know, I, I can learn, but everyone has to look at the painting and on their phone or whatever because you can't download it or whatever. But a poem, I can actually read it. And in the reading, I can take it apart because it's in English because I speak English. I'm only reading English poems. I'm not reading translations yet. I speak English. I can think. You know what I mean? And that's, that's what a poem is. It's a piece of art in words. And by taking it apart, I realized, wow, there's a lot more going on here and actually make something out of this. And once I realized that, I said, you know what, I can, I can do something really cool with this. And I'm going to prove to men you know, who do think that poetry is, you know, like I said in the intro, it's for romance or for women. It's like, no, no, these poems, because I had a whole book of them, you know, have something important to tell us 
about what it is to be a man. And since my my poetry collection has since grown, and now you know I'm I'm branching into all these different you know uh, different areas. My uh, I've been I've been waiting to tell. I'll tell you now specifically. I've been waiting because I know that you'll be excited. In this my next episode, which will be out next week, uh, is going to be uh, uh, something of Shakespeare. So I think you'll enjoy it. I'm very excited. I'm very because my tenth one, and so I'm, I'm putting a lot into this one. So I've, I've wanted, to, I've, I've been like, I want to surprise Arthur with it, but I've been, I, I keep getting ready to record it. It's like it's not ready yet. It's not ready yet. So because it's Shakespeare, like you got to do justice to Shakespeare. You can't just like pop off on that. You know what I mean? Look, I'm just gonna, just gonna drop the, the final soliloquy from Troilus and Cressida. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm just gonna drop the, 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 the final victory from Cymbeline. No. <laughs> 39 plays. I actually didn't know he had written 39 plays because you only didn't really hear about the same 10 of them. Oh, yeah. It's like, have you, have you ever read Midsummer Night's Dream? No, never. No, never. Yeah, of course. Of course I have. You know? <laughs> like, of course, it's only, it was only assigned three times as I was growing up through school as if there's, you know, could we just read Othello? Or maybe I did read um, The Tempest. I did like The Tempest when that was assigned at some point. Yeah, the Tempest is a peculiar one. Like, um, somewhere along the line, like he started breaking his own rules, which is why the two the two I mentioned are always my go tos: Charles of Cressida and Cymbeline, because like they're the tragedies that break the tragedy structure. Like when I, we spoke about in your podcast about modernism and like the the breakdown of modern syntax, like Charles and Cressida ends bleakly. Like there's supposed to be this big duel between Achilles and Hector and they found that like no actually Achilles just gets his guy just gets his guys when they find Hector on arm and just slaughter him. It's like it's a weird just bleak ending. Very bleak. Found that fascinating. And Cymbeline is an actual like hero's journey. It's the one hero's journey Shakespeare wrote. Hmm. And then the Tempest has like has some interesting detours in the it's 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 not like the typical progression of true love never never did run smooth. Like it's it's there's some if you, if you look at it, like there's certain gaps and certain voids that don't show up in, in Shakespeare's other plays. So that those like those those two I mentioned in the Tempest, like those are the really interesting ones to me because they're not as formulaic compared to you mm. know, a lot of the ones you typically hear about. But I'm very very excited. I like the Tempest because I guess the character of Prospero is kind of Shakespeare kind of. It's his last play, I think, and where he's just kind of like he's the old. He's not even old at that point; like he's in his forties. But he's this wizened kind of wizard who's you know sort of reached the end of his line casting spells, I guess you might say, and sort of it reflects a little bit more of him than I think any almost any other character does. Yeah, it's like the the transformation of Shakespeare becoming like the wise old man, like at the end of the road, mm-hmm. just bringing back the wisdom in the other direction. It's fantastic. But yeah, I, I think poetry in general. I think I, well. I don't think the arts in general has a lot to teach us because the arts is pure beauty. The arts is it transcends the material concerns of life, earning a living, you know, f- raising kids, building a legacy. All these things are really valuable and you know acquiring health and getting in shape. But the arts when they're really re- really excellent, transcendent, they take us out of ourselves and they take us into this other other realm and it's escapism but not in the way that we're used to thinking of escapism escapism is usually thought of in a video game sense like oh, i'm just going to turn off my brain you know for some amount of time or watch tv or watch a video on youtube or whatever or read you know read uh, you know dime store science fiction or something like that like that's escapism but art and beauty real and, and, and truth this is a, the kind of escapism that really just lights 
human beings up on every possible level to glimpse something that's so overwhelmingly beautiful, whether it be a sculpture or a painting or to watch a play or to listen to classical music or music without words or something like that, to really go into that space, it's nourishing to the soul. But there's a cost that's more than just the cost of a museum ticket. You actually have to bring your attention to it. It, it asks something of you. And so what I want to do with the poems is I recognize that if someone were to just pick one of the poems that I choose and try to read it, they may not necessarily in their everyday lives have the energy to bring to it or be able to create the space of peace, you know what I mean, to really be this place like, okay, I'm ready to engage with this piece of art. So what I try to do in the poetry episode is because I can communicate this art with my voice, essentially, through the internet, right, uh, I can show a little bit about the background of the poem to inform this is kind of what's going on behind the scenes of the poem, then read it, then break it down, and then read it again. And then I've just given you the experience of being able to engage with the art in this way that you can, with my intention, that you be nourished as a human being and as a man so that you see some aspect of yourself captured in this art that you might not have otherwise seen. And you can see how almost every human experience is pretty universal. Like I did this episode, The Caller, with George Herbert. And it's about the George Herbert, who was a priest, struggling with his vocation. Like maybe, you know, he actually, I'm, para, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but like, you know, he's struggling. He's like, do I continue going on a priest or do I say fuck it and peace out and go travel, essentially? And he's felt this calling, and I go into the background of, you know, why he felt a calling and all that. And so to see in this poem, as I break it down, that your struggle, not necessarily yours, yours, Arthur, but perhaps yours or anyone's, when you struggle with calling, that's a, that's a universal male thing. It's like, gosh, this thing that I've been called to do is so difficult, and I don't know that I can do it, and I want to check out, and I want to go do something else, but it always calls me back to the thing. And that experience is a universal, because here's this guy that had this experience 500 years ago, using, you know, it's like it, using language that's obviously far more beautiful than we would use to describe but in this way that c captures it and makes art into it. And so the idea is that each individual poem that I'm reading, and there are, of course, thousands I could draw from, is meant to show men a specific aspect of being a man that another man has experienced in another era that has put words to it that sometimes we don't always have. And so that's the, that's the intention, so that the men listening feel heard and understood and come to understand themselves better and maybe feel peace with their struggle. Like maybe you'll listen to the caller and be like, oh, wow, I'm struggling with my vocation or my calling. But you know what? This other guy was too, and so I'm not alone. And so I can continue back into the fight. And that's the intention for all of these, whether it's, you know, John Donne, The Ecstasy, which is probably the episode, one of the episodes I'm most proud of, because it's the most complicated poem ling linguistically, and it's the longest one that I've read so far. And when I break it down, I actually had the experience. So I do the, like, I, the, the pattern is, I talk about the poet, I read the poem once, I do the interpretation, and then I read the poem again, and that's the end of the episode. When I finished that episode, and when I read the poem again, I got the poem even better, and I walked away with, for myself, something that I wanted to create for the men who are listening, and I was like, yes, okay, I'm doing a good thing here. This is really cool, because I got a little bit of my own experience. And so it's, it's, it's something that I can do, and I can't say that I ever really had a passion for poetry in this way. It's like, it's been a calling. It's just an opportunity that presented itself to me, and I looked at I picked it up, and I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, wow, this is actually cool. I can do something with it, and it's been a process of just getting better at it over time. So it's not like I ever said I'm going to be a poetry analyst or I have any like authoritative credentialist backgrounds and it's just 
I'm a man, I know how to read, and I know how to think. I can do it. <laughs> Nature chat was, was semi-ripping on me. Because um, I'm always, you know, what's been a blessing is I'm consistently amazed by my guests every time. Good. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's a blessing. I, I have so many good things to say about it. Um, Owen was, wow. 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 There's Hemingway. Wow. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I did that on my podcast. It was awesome. I, did, I, I never won't. I'll probably send that in. It's just one of the best impressions and jokes you can do, especially for such an incredible film mm. of Midnight in Paris. But when I when I first na- nature chat something that amazed me, um, and I was like, wow. And he's like, I thought I was confused. I thought like you thought it was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if you're, if you, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be looking at your face on video right now. So the, the, the look is not like, wow, this guy's stupid. But if it's just audio, I can imagine how someone might feel like, what is that reaction? Especially, so he's, he's from Croatia as well. So that like maybe he thought there's like a, a language barrier, a culture uh-huh. barrier there too. So he's an extra sort of just like, whoa, okay, maybe I said something wrong. And I was like, that's amazing. And he almost he said he like he took a breath. He's like, oh, thank God. Um, <laughs> awesome. But yeah, no, I, I'm consistently amazed by my guests. Um, That's great, and you should be because people are amazing. They are, yeah, they really are. Yeah. Um, and you know, I love how it's like, you know, I actually need to show my fiance uh, your poetry podcast because she may or may not have done an emphasis in her bachelor's in poetry. Oh. Um, so when I when I write poetry, she'll I like she'll do one or two or both of. Mm, don't know about that one. Like, mm, you know, the list right here doesn't exactly work. Or she'll be just over the moon about it, which she has, which feels amazing. Or she'll do both. It's like, I'm over the moon about this. But this bit right here, mm, not really sure about that. Like, let's, just, let's just adjust a little bit, you know, because, you know, and then she'll apply, like, she's like, yeah, but I'm just applying an academic sort of standpoint to this. And I was just like, yeah, well, I don't really want to say it like that. Because she's like, oh, okay, okay, it's fine. Um, but I need, I need to show her a couple episodes of your poetry podcast, um, cause I think she'd love them. I think she would really love them despite the, despite it, despite it being poetry for men, I think she'd like, and she, she likes me reading poetry and she likes me reading haiku to her, which is one of my favorite things to do. Um, but yeah, I, uh, you know, my podcast isn't really like the rejuvenation podcast. It's not the... Why don't you come come listen to the Blood and Rain podcast on a Sunday to real feel at home and you know the <laughs> Sabbath. Like, there's nothing about my podcast that's really like that. It's like it's just it's a lot of intensity and it really like ultimately it's to to at the at the end like I'm going to share a lot of knowledge or share a lot of wisdom or share the knowledge of wisdom brothers or, or certain takes that I have about things that may or may not be hot takes about cats or you know. Um, I mean, <laughs> sometimes I, I grew up with cats, man. I, took, I didn't, I'm not saying I was insulted. I just said a little surprise. I've, I've noticed that, you know, I've noticed that dog, the cat lovers, they, they, they typically say, you know, no, I love dogs too. I just love cats more. But then dog lovers are like, dude, a cat killed my family. It like, stole my girlfriend, it burned my crops and poisoned my water supply. I was just like, there's a very clear contrast going on. Yeah. Um, Cats do those sort of things. They're fucking terrible creatures. <laughs> no, I, I grew up with cats. I grew up with cats. I grew up. Slide plates down and like off the counter. Like no, they will do some devious, you know, mischievous things for sure. 
but and I share my I, I share my takes on my podcast, but like there's nothing like really ultimately like, the final note about the podcast each time is to be it's actually it's 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 a phrase from the morning orthodox prayers that I have stuck in my head every day. Mm-hmm. And it says that we are not coming from sleep will not be weary from the from the haze of sleep, but instead that being roused into action that we may strengthen the will of our souls. I just mm-hmm. and that I, I'm paraphrasing because I've read translations that are Russian Orthodox, I've read translations that are Greek Orthodox, even Ethiopian Orthodox. So they have like a different sort of vernacular for that. But really the phrase that comes through every time is being roused into action. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of perpetuates with my podcast. So it's a, I, I am not the rejuvenation podcast guy. I'm, I'm not. I'm not the, I'm not like Nature Chad's podcast, Nature's Honor. It's very like, hello, I'm Nature Chad, and this is the podcast. It's going to be okay because A, B, C, and D. So go do that. I'll see you next time. I love you all. I'm like, that's not what I do. That's not my skill set, really. That's not my strength. Mm-hmm. So to have a podcast that, you know, if, you, if you're blessed with good English teachers, like I was in high school, like I was blessed with not so great math teachers. I, I was cursed with not so great math teachers, and I was blessed with brilliant English teachers. They'll get you to love poetry. They'll get you to love prose. They'll get you to love writing and how to love to write. But other English teachers, you know, are just sort of going through the motions. Like, so what do you think that um, what do you kids think Emerson's saying here? <laughs> I get like kind of a pause, and you'll see your last name. Uh, O'Keefe. What do you think? Well, I just think that um, that uh. You know, it sounds like he's a pretty sad guy. It's like, it's just, it's it's this dead zone of appreciating art, and it's very unfortunate. It's very sad to me. And the fact that you come through this organic process of picking up poetry, you're not necessarily thinking that you're going to be a poetry analyst, but you're giving people space to actually consume art properly. You're giving people the space and just the right words to say to hit all the right little triggers for them to marinate on the art that you're presenting. Mm-hmm. And not only that, that's going to create a further passion for them to be able to take that same process independent of the podcast, but having been born by listening to that kind of podcast mm-hmm. and be able to read and listen to poetry and, and other mediums of art, whether that be even even a medium like opera where it's a foreign language, you can start to give yourself the space to sort of take that in, even if you may not understand the German, the French, the Italian you can sort of get more of a semblance of going on because you've wired your brain to that process. That that podcast that you're doing gives people that tool, and that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, again, it's, it's my it's my pleasure to throw a thousand compliments your way because they're all well deserved. No, I you know I really appreciate it. I think as you know that we all go about doing our daily uh, grind of content creation, whatever it is we do when we go about living our lives. And sometimes it's really easy to fall into space. Like, am I making a difference? You know, is it is is what I'm doing connecting with people? Whether or not whether or not we know that's true rationally, like we still fall into those spaces. And it's really nice. It's always lovely to hear that. Of course, it's lovely to hear it from you and to see to see it on your face because, like, yes, okay, you know, I, I'm I'm not just. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm connecting with Arthur, who I have a lot of respect for, who's lived an incredible life, and I was grateful to have you on my podcast because you were able to relate your story to me. So the notion that I would be able to impress and connect with a man like you gives me great hope because it means that I can connect with other men who are also like you. And so these compliments, like they don't come across as as gushing and or anything like that. It's like yes, okay, I'm doing I'm doing my job, I'm doing okay. 
because you know Arthur is a discerning man of taste and experience, and if, if I can connect with him, then I can connect with other men. So thank you. That's, I, I mean that very sincerely. Thank you. Thank you for the work, seriously. Thank you. Yeah. And um, and, and that, that brings me to the, the future aspect that I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, on a side note, I'm, I'm because this could be a whole another whole podcast in itself. I love the. I'm, I'm halfway through it. Your, your second episode with Jonathan West. Mm, thank you. About race in the Renaissance, because I, I I see true racism in 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 parts of the sphere, in parts of mm-hmm. what you're seeing on Instagram between men. Like they're it's assigning racism to masculinity, and it sickens me. Yeah, I don't consider, you know, if you have authentically racist beliefs, I don't consider you part of the renaissance of men because you should be actively challenging your prejudices against your fellow human. Yeah, your fellow man. Your fellow man, exactly. And your fellow, yeah, exactly. Especially your fellow man because if you can't see past someone's uh, background to see how this person might be your brother and to give them every chance to see you the same way, if 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 you're not leading in that way, you're not really part of doing this. You're doing your you're doing your own thing. You're trying to push your own agenda. This is about bringing people together, and so you have to give people a chance. You ha- it's your responsibility. You listening to this, you have to give them a chance. They can choose or reject it, and and plenty of people will because a lot of people have their own agendas too. But if yeah. you're not if you're not leading in that way, you know, uh, as strong as you might be, as capable as you might be, you're missing something. I'm happy to tell you that. Absolutely. And, and you know what? I, I mentioned this in a in a group chat. You know, every culture at some point in time when they had their prime had some philosophy of superiority. They had it in Hellenic Greece. They had it in Mongolia. They had it in Japan. They had it in Germany. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you dig deep enough in each culture system, I'm sure you're going to find some whiff of that superiority complex and superiority theory. Yeah, conquest, empire building. It's, these are, it's part of human history. It's not yeah. They seem to come across this thing like, but we are like the ones, and it's like, oh, are you? Like, come on, like, no, you're not. No, you're not, because this notion and this this sort of blitz of arrogance will come crashing down as quickly as it rose, and it always does. In in most in most ways, quicker, honestly. Mm -hmm. Most instances, quicker. So that's when when I when I see that. Like I actually, I actually had a, I had some some schmo, like message me uh, some 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 meme or something basically. I, what, what was it he sent me? He sent me like a, a you know he sent me a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger doing like a Heil Hitler thing with like and then it, it photoshopped his arm in the same direction where his crotch was. It's like these are my political beliefs, and well, I was like, he wasn't doing a Heil Hitler. He was doing a bodybuilder pose. Yeah, but he's basically making it like like an they're alluding to that and had a little swastika attached to it, and I was just like, he's like, these are my political beliefs. Is like, uh, hello, why are you messaging me? And he's just like, you'll get there. I'm like, get where? <laughs> you'll get there. Oh, so you're patronizing and an asshole. Okay, good. Yeah, he's like, oh, you see my page? You see a shiny page? Like, okay, well, hopefully we can get this guy on our team. Then I look at him, and he, he's he's. Like this, this, this eighteen-year-old who you can tell may or may not have been bullied, who's trying to seek some superiority, trying to seek some power source outside of himself, maybe attached to his to his race. It's 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 ridiculous. Right. But on the flip, the, the complete opposite of this spectrum 
you have the people who are now it's like, well, if you're, if you're white, if you're white, you know, you, you, you inherently believe A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and therefore you can't be trusted. Or you have modern-day identity politics that people are not realizing they're being so tolerant, they're being so quote-unquote tolerant that it's going completely in the other direction where it's borderline actually racist. Mm-hmm. Not even borderline. Yeah, it, it really is actually racist. So it's, it, it's, it's, it's two ends of the spectrum that wind up in extremes and wind up in, in, in unnecessary suffering and external suffering towards people who you should help be fostering. Like you said, this is supposed to bring people together. So hearing that open dialogue within the two of you is just absolutely enriching and absolutely healing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it could have everyone take a breath and say, okay, like we really are all in this together. This is a, this is a shining example of that. Like the rena- like you said, the renaissance of man is for every man. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's for, it's for men of agency. Like if you really want to boil it down, if you are a man and you believe that you are a man of agency and that you are in control of your life, and with, with God's help, Believe it, you know, and however you conceive of that. But if you believe that you are in control of your life, and it's your responsibility to make your life what you want it to be, for your own benefit, the benefit of the loved ones and your community and humanity, and you believe that it, it is fundamentally in your hands, and that whatever skills you don't have, that you have the capability to acquire them, that's agency, and that you're not a victim. You're not a victim. If you are that man, if you have that sense of agency, then you're part of the Renaissance of Men. That's what it comes down to, is how you conceive of yourself and how you conceive of yourself in a community. And where, you know, the social justice critical theory people and where the supremacists both go wrong is they both conceive of things in terms of victimhood. And there's a thing called the victim-victor cycle. And that's where, with the, yeah, you, you know it is. So the victor tries to get on, the victim tries to get on top and become the victor. But then when, in order to do that, you have this entitlement that allows you to victimize someone else. So you basically hand off your victimhood identity to them, and then they're on the bottom of the pyramid, and then they get to climb back up and triumph over you so that they can be the victim. And then the whole dance repeats itself. And that's why there's nothing more destructive, to because it, it turns people into essentially enemies, there's nothing more destructive to you personally than the victimhood identity. The person you're selling the most uh, short is yourself, because agency is very different from big victimhood and entitlement very different and and it's it's all too easy there are a lot of people there are a lot of particularly young men that are very isolated that have not had good pay, parents good structures you know maybe maybe they're in dire economic circumstances and they turn on the tv and they turn on the media and it's all telling them and their school is telling them that they're wrong bad and terrible and they're responsible for all the ills of the world and what that's doing is it's creating in, in fact this may even be the point of it it's creating the victim victor cycle it's, it's, it's certainly manipulating that cycle for a specific orchestrated agenda. That's, that's becoming more and more evident. Yeah, and, and they, again, this is why initiation is so important. And whether or not you know, the Mankind Project calls to or whatever, I think we can all agree that initiate, and actually many men in the manosphere now, like this particular side of the Renaissance, uh, are very much exploring ideas of initiation, something I have in my mind. How will I create an initiation? And I think a lot of that is born out of this notion of initiation, which ties into something that's in the book Wild at Heart by John Eldridge, which is another classic of this world. And he boils down the essential, uh, what we might call masculine dilemma to something between fathers and sons, where the son is constantly asking one question. And the question is, do I have what it takes? That's what the son needs, the, the desperate thing that the son needs to hear from the father during his upbringing, that yes, 
son, you have what it takes. And the father demonstrates that all throughout, bringing the child up, even to the point where, like, you know, if an adult male is wrestling with a little five-year-old boy, like the adult male has to let the five-year-old boy win and pretend like, oh, you've got me, because that little, because the five-year-old boy doesn't necessarily know any better, but it's the first demonstration that you have what it takes. And the father is constantly affirming to the boy, you have what it takes, you have what it takes, you have what it takes, until he gets to the point that he gets into his life, and then he knows he has what it takes. He really and does have what it takes at the end does. of the process. Well, even if, even if he doesn't have what it takes, he knows he does because that belief is fundamental. You know what I mean? That fun, that it's like, maybe I don't have what it takes, but I believe in myself and I'm going to do it because the father has, through love, through masculine fatherly love, taught his son to believe he has what it takes. So when the decisive moment arrives, the son believes he has what it takes and then he has what it takes because so much of our life is driven about our belief about ourselves, right? So the way this ties into initiation is that so many men don't grow up with fathers like that at all. Either if they grow up with fathers at all, their fathers didn't know to tell them that because they didn't know from their fathers, etc. And we're fixing that. What initiation does is initiation is fundamentally the, the boy, or the, I guess the young man, doing something to, deter, to, to demonstrate concretely that he has what it takes and then being acknowledged in a community of men who say back to him, you have what it takes. And as soon as you know that about yourself, that you have what it takes, then the entire responsibility of life is placed onto your shoulders and you recognize that you can carry it. And like you carry, like weightlifting, like gardening, like you said, you get stronger with time. You put one load on and, you get, you, and then you have more capacity and you put more load on. And that process begins with self-belief, believing that you have what it takes. And then life gives you more responsibility as you have the capacity to handle it. And great men are born out of that that fundamental belief that you have what it takes and that's why initiation is so important i look at many of these men you know who have a lot of anger who fall into supremacist or or even uh, social justice beliefs and i think a lot of it just comes back to them trying to answer the question do i for themselves do i have what it takes and determining no i don't or yes i do and i'm going to fuck you know fuck over the world until i prove it to myself and if they were just had a father who gave that to them, or they had a circle of men who looked at them in the eye after completing a task, you have what it takes. It would it would solve all of that, and that's what we're doing right now. That's that's masculine healing. Yeah, that's, that's masculine healing, and that's masculine balancing, and that's like that's that prevents that extremity of like searching in this strange ideology backed up by extreme action, thinking that maybe some small distorted view of a victory with that extreme action actualizes that extreme belief mm -hmm. that really is ultimately like a coping mechanism absolutely mm -hmm. absolutely mm -hmm. absolutely and that's why bodybuilding is so popular not that bodybuilding is a good and inherent good in itself so oh, not, yeah. not to take it away from bodybuilding but i think a lot of men are looking for external proof for themselves that they have what it takes so they commit very very extremely to a path because they want to achieve something so they can see for themselves whether they have what it takes. And many men do incredible things and perhaps they answer that question themselves. But unless that last piece is put into place, like, you know, unless the, the fit guy looks in the mirror and is able to reflect on his journey to get there and to say, I started overweight and now I'm in shape and now I'm in great shape. Holy shit, oh my God, I have what it takes and allows that to propagate through his being. 
then that last piece is missing and he'll continue searching. But that last piece, we all need that piece answered. And that's a beautiful thing about men because it speaks to our capability that we all want to be capable. And that's the question that lives within men, this essential question. Do I have what it takes? Am I capable of making a difference in the world? And I think that's make, what makes us beautiful as creatures, I guess you might say, is that we ask ourselves that question. And hopefully we can all answer it together. That extreme action in itself is a good thing. It's just the guidance towards where it is. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of paths are going to seem deeply unreasonable to people and they don't need to be reasoned about. People didn't, people didn't see, a lot of, probably people, a lot, of, a lot of people close to you didn't see your travel path as one that made any sense. It's like, that doesn't need to make sense to you. That's right. It doesn't. It really doesn't. I my, my green martyrdom path I did for four years didn't need to make sense to anybody but me. That's amazing. And I was so, I was super happy every day. It was awesome. I was like, this is great. <laughs> um, so that's, in the whole nine yards, the renaissance of men. And before we go, mm. you've touched upon the renaissance of women. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to see that. Yeah. I'm, I'm starting to see that in my own fiance, honestly. Awesome. So good. I just saw it the other day. I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, you know, I love you with my entire heart and have for a very, very long time. But I'm seeing even brighter rays and then you emerge. Mm-hmm. That's, how, how could I not be happy about that? Mm-hmm. How, how could I not be absolutely over the moon about that? And I know you had Brendan Schmidt of Mask and I mentioned before, Brendan Schmidt of Mask and was on your podcast. You did a great podcast together. It's incredible. He's a great um, guy. He's a great guy. I love that guy. I, re- I reached out to him uh, because I'm going to be in Seattle next weekend. I was like, hey, you think you could just maybe have a cheeky little drive down from Vancouver and maybe we could uh, get a podcast done? But, you know, he has a Canadian, the, the Canadian border is a little bit tighter these days due to COVID nonsense. Um, so we'll, we'll get that podcast done in due time. But he was mentioning his, his current relationship. He's, he's seeing that renaissance of women flourish within her as well. So how would you describe the renaissance of women? How would you describe what you call the great reconciliation? What do you think the future looks like for the relationship between man and woman? Oh, that's what I'm looking forward to. Um, the renaissance of men, it's, it's been going on for 40 years. And there's this idea by the scientist Rupert Sheldrake. It's called the morphic field. And it's this idea. I've, I've, I've I've heard it referred to also as the morphogenetic field, but I don't know if that's actually correct. He calls it the morphic field. It's this idea, this shared ideas, that we, this cloud of ideas that we all kind of subconsciously swim in. If you're picking up frequencies, if you somehow feel this, a lot of people will say, do you feel the energy today? Do you feel the energy today? Yeah, we do. <laughs> that's a morphic field thing. Or if you feel the fear or the darkness or something like that, you know, or you pick up ideas, that's the morphic field that's shifting constantly around us. And I think what's happened with the renaissance of men, um, I, it's kind of difficult to describe because, you know, I'm, 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 I'm speaking linearly, but these, there are things that are going on in parallel. But the renaissance of men has gone far enough into culture, 
in the morphic field that it exists, and I talked about this, I think, in the introduction to my, my podcast with you, that now there are just men that are spontaneously waking up, young men that are spontaneously recognizing there's something wrong with masculinity. They've never encountered anything from the manosphere or read the rational male or the Jack Donovan, but they just seem to be waking up and they find their way, like the solar sphere guys, you know, the Forrest Mundans and and, 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 uh, and the Joe Abra and, you know, Nature Pill to some extent and uh, Gold Pill, and I, I can list all <laughs> the... <laughs> Neo Libertade and you know shout out Evol Academy shout out to all the guys shout out to all the bros, I, you know like where did like no one's gonna hand them like here's the rational male at age eighteen or nineteen no they just figure it out for themselves I think that's partially as a result of these ideas about the renaissance of men broadly not my brand necessarily but the whole totality of what we're doing getting far enough into the morphic field that men are just spontaneously picking up on it and recognizing I need to improve myself. And 2020, as we talked about, accelerated that process. It was this big squeeze that happened and all this you know, positive energy popped out of a lot of men that went further into the field. It's how evil destroys itself as it tries to clamp down and it creates what it wants to destroy. It's the whole dynamic that you see. Amazing. Amazing, right. This is, and C.S. Lewis outlines this, I think, in one of his books. I think it's in... It's in like the problem of pain or something like that, but that's a whole other conversation. But um, uh, so the renaissance of men, as it propagates into men, it's also propagating into women as they're recognizing that for the past, say, 60 or so years, women have had to be the man because men haven't been the man. But now, as men are stepping up and becoming the man and are stepping into that completely out of what's outside of what culture is telling them. Culture is like, you have to be the woman, you have to bend the knee to women and blah, all that stuff. And so men are like, you know what, screw you. I turned off the TV, turned off the media, and I'm just going with this community's men and they're standing up and they're becoming the fullest version of themselves as men. That same spirit is triggering and awakening women that they can let go of the need to be the man and they, they can be women. And they can start polarizing, essentially, the masculine and the feminine you know, coming back where the, the masculine creates the space, the boundaries, like the square that the feminine can come into and take off all of its armor and heal and be feminine again. That's the renaissance of women. And these processes are synergistic. So the more men that engage in this work and propagate it outward, the more the energy is created that attracts women to it. And the more women who come in and cast off all of their beliefs about feminism and, and all these different terrible things that I'm sure that we could talk about and allow themselves to be graceful and feminine again, the more men that will look and say, that's where all the beautiful women are, you know, that are, that are radiating grace and joy and smiling again. What does it take to get a woman like that? Oh my God, I've got to sort myself out. The more it starts attracting men and feeding back into men. So this is how men and women begin feeding into each other's processes that's when it begins to achieve uh, uh, the virtuous cycle men putting out, women receiving, giving back to men this is the dynamic and what that together will create is what I call the great reconciliation where men and women who have both been so de deceived in different ways together for the past say 60 or perhaps even 100 years come together and recognize and essentially say I am so sorry to each other it's not something that men need to say first to apologize and bend the knee and beg for forgiveness and not something that women need to do either. It's a recognition that we have both been wrong and we have both wronged and that we recognize that we ultimately love each other more than we're angry at each other and we make amends for the wrongs that were done 
to us. Not, it's not personal. It can be as simple as men. If you know a woman who's had something happen to her in her past that was tragic, you hold her in her arms and just let her cry and let her beat on your chest. Not because it's you. She's not taking it out on you. It's the anger that's coming out of her. In the same way that men do work with each other and express their anger at the things that have been done to them, women have anger as well. We all carry it as part of being human. And women need to feel that masculine holding, that container, so that they can feel safe and take off what's been forced upon them and that they've put on and they can let that go and be feminine and graceful again. And certainly there are many men, myself included, who have been mistreated by women. But to see a woman be feminine and graceful heals all of that. It heals all of that to be able to experience that again because I believe men are healed in the presence of a truly graceful and beautiful woman. And that reconciliation process, that process of of, of coming back together, of reunifying, the great reunification as well. The great reunion could be another way of thinking of it, is what will create what we want, which is a better world for our kids. This notion that two conscious, aware, integrated men and women can birth the next generation and give them the blessings that we didn't receive. This is about our sons. This is about our sons and daughters. This is not, it's not just about us and being together and being awesome and being brothers. It is absolutely about that. That's the sea shanty. We're all on the ship and we're singing and raising the sails and on the waves and it's coming and we're still singing louder and louder. I wrote a post about that. We all go up together. You know, that's the joy of, of masculine brotherhood is that we're sailing these seas together. And also, we have women that are engaging in their own process of healing and transformation. And as we come together, we will accomplish the goal of actually birthing the children that, that have a better environment, that we have boys that grow up knowing, do I have what it takes? And women you know, grow, who grow up knowing, there's a book called Captivated by um, John Eldridge's wife. I think her name is Stacy Eldridge. That's a book for women. There's a question that lives at the heart of every woman as well. I, I, I don't remember what it is, but I think it's like, am I, am I beautiful? I think is something, is, is something along those lines. I, I don't know that that's the word. But women want to hear that too. They, want, they have their own questions that they want to get answered. And we'll begin answering these questions for ourselves and for each other. And when we have them answered, we will build the environment for our kids that I think we all feel that, uh, that they deserve, that we want to give as parents and, and fathers. And just the last thing, if I could say, what I'm so happy about the Renaissance of Men the thing that brings me the most joy about it is where it seems to be landing now after 40 years from the mythopoetic guys and the pickup guys and the red pill guys and the manosphere it's it's landing on this notion of the patriarch the father the father energy the king energy right it's landing in this place for the purpose of procreation of, of birthing the next generation what i love about the solar guys is they all seem so enthusiastic to be dads to be husbands and to be fathers that that even that energy has reached them even though they're not necessarily in that stage of life yet that it's something they're looking forward to. And I, I need to acknowledge uh, J-O-A bra, Joe Abra, because he's actually talking about journey to journey to old age. Like he's talking about, he's thinking about becoming an old man, even even transiting past that past that point of of fatherhood and the kids leave the house and then you have to then you have to acquire wisdom you have to cultivate your life experience into wisdom that he's thinking about that i don't even know how old he is but he's probably not in the 70s 22 he's 22 that's awesome go follow joa bra joa dot bra like active because we got to be thinking about these things the entire narrative of being a man not just being young and fit and glorious and awesome like achilles but actually being a father and like hector you know and and then being being an elder we have to think this is the totality yeah. of yeah. 
man, it's awesome. It's completely awesome. And, and that manner of thinking about this is the best thing because it's going beyond just the moment. And that brings it all full circle, really. I'm trying to, I'm trying to literally knock you over in your chair. <laughs> That's awesome. You have knocked me over in my chair more than you can know, and it's something we're going to have to discuss off the air, at least for now. I'd love that. I'd love that. I, as you can tell, I can talk about this stuff for hours. It's my life's work. It is abundantly evident. Coming at a hard cut off because I have to go to work, unfortunately, and I wish I didn't. I know. Thank and you. I have to speak to the missus before I go to work, and I'm very looking, very much looking forward to that as well. Before I go, first of all, are there any leaders in the renaissance of women that you think we should be supporting? Any names we can throw out there, content creators that people can go follow? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like the work of uh, Embracing Femininity, who is Masculine Revival's girlfriend. She's awesome. She's oh, wow. okay. Yeah, and um, let's see. There's Woman.Illuminated. Uh, uh, she's, although I think she may be taking a break for a while. There's Fempilled. There's Feminine, not Feminist. Um, there's also Christina Louise K. Christine, I, I think it's Christina Louise K or Christina Louise K. Those are the ones that come to the, the top of my mind. But there are little, literally dozens of them taking, and that was the most exciting thing for me to discover. Like, oh wow, this is a thing, and they don't see themselves as a thing either. <laughs> so I'm, I'm actually planning on doing a, a, pod, a panel podcast with members of the Renaissance of Women and letting them share their experiences of coming to this own. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh, I can't wait for that one. That's gonna be fin that's gonna be fantastic. Yeah, I need to hear this stuff. So, so, um, so I'm, I've been working on that for several months, and it's starting to come to fruition. So that should be happening soon. I'm very much looking forward to that. Awesome. And then before we go, where can people find you and where should people be looking to find in the future? Is there anything else uh, on the horizon under this phenomenal project? Umbrella? The best place to find me now is you find me on Instagram at Ren of Men. That's R-E-N-O-F-M-E-N, uh, -E like Renaissance of Men, but shorter, Ren of Men. You can also go to my website, renofmen.com. I recommend starting with renofmen.com slash library, which actually lists many of the books and leaders and Twitter accounts and communities that, that comprise the Renaissance of Men. I need to update it because new men are joining in all the time, but that's a really good place to start and yeah, get it involved. Right. Yeah, and then chronicling everything. That's fantastic. Yeah, I want, to, I want men to really see what's going on and how much energy and thought is being put into this. And I really can't keep up with all the new books people are recommending to me. Like, please keep them coming. But, like, it's, it's, it's incredible to me to see how, big, how much bigger this is than even I recognized. And then you can follow me on Twitter, at Will underscore Ren of Men. And I'm working on a very big project behind the scenes that I can't tell. I completely understand, but I, regardless, I'm looking forward to it, whatever it is. Thank you. Yes, and you can find information about my podcast on my website, or you can search Spotify and Apple for... Actually, go to, um, to renofmen.podbean.com, and from there you can find all the different uh, links to where you want to listen to my podcast. Well, thank you so much for all of your work and for coming on the podcast today, and I know it is the second of many. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Thank you so much, Arthur. I was really looking forward to talking to you because I knew we'd have an incredible conversation and just because our connection facilitates that. So massive respect to you and because you also give me so much in what you do in your work. So thank you for inspiring me and, and pushing me to be better. Thank you so much. It's, an, it's truly an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So all you folks, go follow the Renaissance. Go be a part of the Renaissance, more importantly. 
And if you don't know what that looks like for yourself, it's time to give that some thought. Mm. So until then, good night and good storms. <laughs>